What's wrong, Lisa? Didn't you get enough lamb chops? I can't eat this. I can't eat a poor little lamb. Lisa, this is lamb, not a lamb. What's the difference between this lamb and the one that kissed me? This one spent two hours in the broiler. But sensible bites. Wait, wait, Lisa, honey. Are you saying you're never going to eat any animal again? What about bacon? No. Ham? No. Pork chop? Dad, those all come from the same animal. Oh, yeah, right, Lisa. A wonderful, magical animal. <laughs> What's it all about? My Aquatic Jerk. A few years ago, I was driving in Chicago on Clybourne Avenue. Traffic was bad, even for rush hour, and pretty soon I saw why. There were ducks in the streets. A little family, I guess. There was a big one and a few little ones. And they were confused, and they were wandering in the streets instead of crossing. And all the cars were going slow and being careful not to hit them. Even a taxi cab that looked like it was about to plow through stopped at the last moment and waited until they passed. It made me feel good about people. We're not so heartless. But then I thought, what are all these nice people going to have for dinner tonight? I'm Daniel Kaufman. Welcome to the Myoclonic Jerk Podcast. This time the subject is eating animals. We'll be hearing from a chef, a slaughterer, a hunter, a rancher, an undercover slaughterhouse investigator, the vice president of the Humane Society Farm Animal Division, a vegan advocate, two scientists, an ecologist, and a doctor. All you can eat and then some. I would have bet any amount of money that it would never happen, but there will even be a clip from G.I. Jane. See if you can find it. Your table is ready right this way. I think that my dad and I could come back and take the cattle back to New Mexico? This herd's not going back. What do you mean? I'm getting top dollar from the meat company. You mean these cows are, uh... Look, folks, they don't have much of a life anyway. Either this fell, but we're not prepared to eat them. This is our business, son. All that meat under cellophane in a supermarket, where do you think it comes from? I'd like you to imagine that you're a guest at a dinner party, and the host is famous for her homemade pasta and meatballs. Imagine that you find it so delicious that you ask the host for her recipe. And flattered, she replies, well, the secret is in the meat. You need to start out with three pounds of extra lean golden retriever. How many of you would find this delicious? There's always one. All right. So take a moment to reflect on your thoughts and feelings. I mean, chances are what you thought of just moments ago as food, you now think of as a dead animal. What you just felt was delicious, you now feel is disgusting. Chances are your experience of the meat dramatically changed, even though nothing about the meat itself actually changed. So what changed? What changes your perception of the meat? And when it comes to eating animals, our perception is shaped largely, if not entirely, by our culture. In meat-eating cultures around the world, people tend to have a tiny handful of animals that they have learned to classify as edible. All the rest 
we learn to classify as inedible and therefore disgusting. So what's striking is not the presence of disgust. Disgust is the norm. What's striking is the absence of disgust. Why are we not disgusted by the five, six, seven, maybe if you're an adventurous eater, species we've been taught to think of as edible? And perhaps more importantly, why don't we ever ask why? Have you ever wondered why you might be willing to eat chicken's wings, but not swan's wings? Leg of lamb, but not leg of kitten. They both come from baby animals. Have you ever wondered why you might be willing to drink cow's milk, but not horse's milk? Are you working up an appetite here? <laughs> when it comes to edible animals, there is a disconnect, a gap in our consciousness. We don't make the connection between the meat on our plate and the living being it once was. When I was growing up, I never thought about how strange it was that I could be petting my dog with one hand while I ate a pork chop with the other. A pork chop that had once been an animal who was at least as intelligent and sensitive and conscious as my dog. I just didn't connect the dots. I just had that knowing without knowing. When I told you you were eating a golden retriever, chances are you couldn't help but think of the living animal and feel disgusted. And yet, when you believed you were eating the flesh of a cow, chances are you had no thought of the living animal and you felt no disgust. So when we're not aware of the reality of our meat, then we are also not aware that we are making a choice every time we eat meat. How are you doing so far? Are your hackles raised yet? Are you thinking up arguments? That was Dr. Melanie Joy, who you won't be shocked to hear is a vegan. I should tell you up front that I'm not, but I'm thinking about it. Lots of people don't like vegans, even when they don't say anything. It feels like they're criticizing us just by being there. So a vegan who speaks, I can imagine, might make you feel a little on edge. We think of meat as just this great, pleasurable sensory experience we have. We don't think of it in terms of the suffering of animals. Bacon, the most beautiful thing on earth. Even the frying of bacon sounds like applause. It's like, And because meat brings us so much pleasure, if we are forced to think about it, we're going to be working with a strong bias. I do love the vegetarians. I always get a kick out of when they try and impress you. They're like, I haven't had meat in five years. I haven't had a banana in a month. You see me bragging about it. Do you know what they do to those chickens? No, but it's delicious. There's a confidence that comes from being in the mainstream. Obviously, I'm okay if everybody else is acting the same. If nothing else, you have to hand it to the vegetarians for being brave. I've heard people say, and I've had people say to me while I was working on the show, aren't there bigger problems in the world? Maybe there are. But this one I'm directly connected to. Every time I eat meat, there's a direct line between me and an animal suffering. If you eat meat, you kill about 2,000 land animals in your life. Just you. Here are three people I really admire. Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Louis C.K. I don't find any very good defense. I find myself in exactly the same position as I might have been 200 years ago, talking about slavery. 
where somebody like Thomas Jefferson, a man of very sound ethical principles, kept slaves. It was just what one did. I mean, it was the societal norm. I live in a society which is still massively speciesist, and intellectually I recognize that, but I go along with it the same way I go along with celebrating Christmas and things like that. I do eat meat, but clearly the way we treat animals, just the nature of what life is like in an abattoir, I can't defend any of that, and I can't defend delegating that. You know, if you would be horrified to kill an animal, well then, to have it done out of sight and out of mind is not an ethical solution. Now, it's the solution that many of us still sleep reasonably soundly at night having put in place, but I don't have an argument to support it. People talk about, like, don't eat dolphins when they're in the tuna. Pick out the dolphins, right? <laughs> you gotta pick it out, like raisins. <laughs> But you ever go to shop for tuna and it says dolphin safe and you kind of go like, yeah, but like somehow you think it's not going to be as good. Like, <laughs> I want to do the right thing, but it's probably kind of bland without the dolphin. But here's the thing. If you're a tuna, fuck you. We're eating you. So I don't really see the difference. And I think it's wrong to eat tuna and dolphin and cows and everything. But I eat them. I eat them all. Because I don't care that it's wrong. I totally think it's terrible, but that's not important to me that it's terrible. So what if it's wrong? It tastes good. And I like the way it feels when I eat it, so fuck it. Here's Dr. Joy again. I think people continue to eat animal products for a lot of different reasons, and I really do believe in the value of taking someone at face value. If somebody says, I can't give up eating animals because it's just too inconvenient, then that may well be the truth for them. Asking somebody to stop eating animals is asking for a profound shift of consciousness, and that doesn't come about until a person is ready for it. It's asking for a shift of identity to become a part of a you know, non-dominant group. Eating animals is deeply symbolic and traditional, and it's just laden with cultural and social and personal meaning. And when we ask somebody to stop eating animals, we're also asking them to take in the reality of animal suffering in the world. And once you take in that reality, your life is never the same. So it makes total sense to me that otherwise humane people choose to continue eating animals. Seated one day at the tom-tom, I heard a welcome shout from the kitchens. Come and get it! Roast leg of insurance salesman. <laughs> a chorus of yums ran round the table, except for Junior, who pushed away his shell, got up from his log, and said, I don't want any part of it. What? Why not? Don't eat people. I got teeth. Eat people is wrong. It's wrong? People have always eaten people. What else is there to eat? If the juju had meant us not to eat people, he wouldn't have made us of meat. <laughs> Don't eat people. Oh, no, not again. I won't eat people. All the day long. Don't eat people. He keeps on repeating. Eating people is wrong. I never heard such a ridiculous idea in all my born days. To think that a son of mine should grow up to be a sissy. 
Me, chief assistant to the assistant chief. I won't eat people. I suppose you're one of those cranks that thinks it's cruel, is that it? You see a man sitting in a pot and you think he's suffering. It's not like that at all. He's just sitting there in the nice warm water, thinking of all the pleasure and happiness he's going to give to a whole heap of people. He knows it's better than just dying of old age. Why, that man in the pot there, he enjoys it. Eating people is wrong. Look, son, when you're young, you, you want to change the whole world overnight, but can be done. You've got to learn to take the world as it is. I won't let another man pass my lips. <laughs> I know why you say don't eat people, because you're a coward. That's your trouble, a yellow-livered coward. You wouldn't mind eating people if you weren't afraid of ending up the pot yourself. You're going the right way about it too, son. They'll eat you even if they can't digest your opinions. I won't eat people. Communist. I won't eat people. Eat people is wrong. Look, going around saying don't eat people is the way to make people hate you. Always happy people, always willing people. You can't change human nature. Now let's I just eat people. I won't eat people. It must have been someone yet. He doesn't eat meat. What do you mean he don't eat no meat? Oh, that's okay. That's okay. I make lamb. I am Christopher Spezkias, and I am a chef. Well, it was Easter time. You know how there's a big tradition in Greece? We cook the whole lamb on the spit. Yeah. Each Greek family does that. Approximately one million lamb are killed for Easter. Wow. You're with your family? I was in Cyprus, yes. And um, I said, well, if we get to eat it, we should get to kill it. I mean, oh, I like that. Well, it's only fair. We should know what we're doing. Right. I agree. Billions and billions of animals are being slaughtered. Oh, you got a problem with it, <laughs> chef? No. How much meat not... do you serve every day in your restaurant? <laughs> no, but it doesn't get off your make high it horse. Fairer, eh? your, get off your high cow. Oh, no, I'm not on a high cow. Eh? I eat <laughs> animals. <laughs> it doesn't make all... it right. Eh? We just eat them because we can't. So you think it's wrong? I don't know if it's wrong. I can't. I mean, I'm too much in it. But anyway, and I think since we are this kind of animal with consciousness, at least we should know what we're doing. So you said, to, who is in charge of the lamb? My cousin. My cousins grew up in a family. They raised goats, lambs, chicken. Okay. It was so normal for my auntie to go in the pigeon house. She had pigeon too. Yeah. She would just twist the head of the poor pigeon and it would die. Boom. Without thinking, just like she was pulling apart asparagus or something. Exactly. You saw that? I always looked away. Oh, yeah? Was, since I was little, I saw my mother killing. Your mother too? When I was growing up, we wouldn't buy chicken from the supermarket. Right? We would just buy a live chicken. Right. So your mom would cut its throat? or? I mean, she was still young and she was scared. But she had to learn to do it because she was raising a family of four kids. Who taught your mom? Her older sister. The uh, one okay. I'm telling you, she was killing all the... That was just woman's work in Cyprus in the she 60s. Said she was told, you know, you have to do that. You have to feed your family. Yeah. So she got used to it. She had to learn. Yeah. I saw chickens running without head. You know how they say you can kill a chicken and it will still run for 50 feet. Yeah. So that is true. Anyway, so my cousins were used to doing... I mean, I saw them killing a pig. I looked away. 
Oh, I've seen that in movies. It's horrible. Yeah, they, they scream. I remember they killed it with a hammer. They didn't have any. Oh, my gosh. Why are you laughing? That's horrible. It's not funny. Oh, man. Because that's the way they did it, right? Yes. That's the way we do it in the third world. You weren't laughing at the time. You were scared when you were a little boy. You have a it's, heart. I wasn't laughing, of course. Yeah. I would just hear them and they would say, oh, it was tough to kill it. I still remember it. It was hard. We made sausages out of it. I ate the sausages. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so do you remember what made you think, I want to do this myself? Because most people just choose not to think about it. But you... I was there. It was Easter time. Yeah. My cousins would get ready to kill the lamb and I said, I'll do it. And they brought it to a little place where it was by itself. But it started screaming. And your cousins are giving you instructions. What do they say? You put the lamb down. You step on their legs with your knees so they can't move. And you lift the head up and then you... Kill him, you know, you cut the neck. Okay, so but did you get to that point? Well, I that's when I stopped. <laughs> <laughs> so, what did you say? No. You're like, I can't, I can't do it. You felt sad for the lamb, or what was it? Well, uh, I don't think I can do it. Eh? I mean, killing another, I remember vividly that I felt that the lamb knew that I was going to kill it. That you're probably projecting, right? I don't know if they know that they're going to be killed, but they sense danger. He was scared. It was scared. Okay, so you hand the knife back, and then did you turn away while they kill it, or? Yeah, <laughs> I went outside the room. Oh, you left. You couldn't even watch it. But I ate. Then what? I ate it. Ah, <laughs> so you have such a big heart when it's right in front of you. I think this is a microcosm of most of the world. Like most people couldn't do it themselves and wouldn't have the heart, but then they eat it. I to kill? Probably not. We just choose not to think about it. I mean, you step on a cockroach. An animal, a lamb, yeah, a cute face, reacting. It's not. I mean, yeah, the lamb looks at with its big eyes and huge eyes. The lamb have huge eyes. Oh, but then it, you ate it and it was delicious and it didn't taste like lamb. <laughs> <laughs> when you're eating it, that didn't feel different than all the other times you ate lamb. I, I thought about. It. I mean, I still do now. I have the capacity to put myself in somebody else's shoes. You know. Yeah, and you, you have know. the capacity to put somebody else into your belly. I don't think of it every day, but I know we kill these animals to feed ourselves. Why don't you become the greatest vegetarian chef in the world? Uh, in, are there any serious vegetarian chefs? No. The top, say, 50 chefs in the world are not vegetarian. You know, in California, uh, recently, they outlawed foie gras. You heard that, yes? Yeah. Tell everybody how they make foie gras. Uh, they force feed uh, ducks. How, what do you mean, they force feed? Like uh, a hose down its throat and just pour grain down into its stomach. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. They overfeed it, so... So the liver gets rich? It's a sick liver, by the way, and it just gets bloated. The liver that is normally, say, 100 grams, the two, three ounces, it's 10 times that. That sounds horrific. In LA, it became illegal, and a lot of the chefs had foie festivals. Oh, wow. Last chance. For the last few days. I think that's stupid. They over pretentious assholes could go to expensive restaurants. <laughs> Your demographic, basically. <laughs> Our customers. <laughs> but it was funny how people got upset. I mean, I like foie gras too, but I can't live without it too. There's one million ingredients in the world we can live without foie gras. Okay, that's nice. Do you think they're going to look back on meat eaters in 100 years and say we were savage? I don't know. I think we should definitely eat less meat. Oh, yeah? Well, no, we eat too much meat. Way too much. Does your menu reflect that? What percentage is vegetarian? 
25. But you think we should eat less meat, so maybe it should be 50-50. It should actually be 70-30. 70-30 vegetarian. Yes, I think that's the... And they can be prepared to be delicious. Of course they're tasty. It's just that we are a society, you know, meat comes easy. Food is like other things in life. You have to learn to appreciate even tastes that are not so obvious. Yeah. Greeks still love vegetables. Well, and they got to they... put a bed under the lamb. <laughs> but I mean, people didn't eat so much lamb. They, it was a celebratory thing. And remember, you fasted for 50 days and then you ate the lamb for Easter. 50? 50. You don't not eat. What do you mean? You don't eat meat for 40 days. You don't no fast. No meat, no dairy, no eggs. So you are a vegetarian part-time. Well, not me, but traditionally, 50 days before Easter, 40 days before Christmas, yeah. two weeks in August, and then every Wednesday and Friday of the year. Wow. So it's a culture where you do eat a lot of vegetables. And now when you guys are so poor, maybe it wouldn't be a bad <laughs> idea to cut down the meat a little, a little <laughs> austerity. Are you are, are you washed in the blood, in the blood, in the soul, in the blood of the land. I'm Andy Kastner. I'm the campus rabbi at Washington University in St. Louis, and I am a shochet. What's a shochet? A shochet is the Hebrew word for a Jewish slaughter that, according to Jewish law, can slaughter animals in a manner that can render them kosher. This may sound strange to say, but it doesn't sound like a job for a nice Jewish boy. I know. My <laughs> parents and my grandmother in particular were so embarrassed. I mean, in a way, it has to be a nice Jewish boy, but uh, or maybe a not-so-nice Jewish boy, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's part of the tension of all this. The nice piece is something that we hope for. I mean, we try to approach this with a tremendous amount of compassion. It doesn't always play out that way in the field. I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, obviously, you're not a fan of factory farming, but do you even consider that food to be kosher? That's an interesting question. Is it kosher to the letter of the law in terms of how it's been processed? Yeah, but it doesn't feel like it embodies the spirit of the law for me. I mean, the essence of what used to be kosher, it didn't require a symbol. It required a relationship between two people. I was raised, you know, I went to Hebrew school, and we were taught that the logic of kashrut is that it's more merciful to animals. Yeah, I've never come across a traditional source that makes it explicit that the process of kosher slaughter is kinder. You know, I've had experiences where an animal can be 100% slaughtered in a kosher manner, but biologically still alive. And conscious. Yeah, yeah, and that's a tough thing to witness. Yeah, I mean, it seems that the fact that we're taught that that's just us imposing our modern values onto rules that were created in a time when that maybe wasn't a concern. It could be. I mean, for me, the process of kosher slaughter has the possibility of impacting the practitioner a bit more. Tell me what you mean. In a time of meat production that happens on a large scale with machinery and stun guns, the experience of being a shochet requires face-to-face, hands-on exposure. And that contact, it, you have to hold the animal with your bare hands. 
and there's nothing standing in the way but the warmth of the animal's body and the beating of their heart and in some cases their fear and there's a transfer of that energy i fear that that sounds so flaky but when we touch living beings they impact us and when you feel the life of an animal leaving by your hands and in your hands it can be a heavy burden to bear so why did you choose to take this burden on i'd grown up out in the country and been a regular shopper at farmers markets for many years and i, I love the idea of relationship of seasonality of knowing where my food was coming from but i had no idea where my meat came from so the act of being hands on has reminded me how serious it is to take a life out of the world and when we go to the grocery store and we buy the skinless boneless chicken breasts it's very easy to be unaware of the life that once was maybe describe the first time you witnessed an animal being slaughtered i was a student in jerusalem and i had met there a rabbinical student by the name of Shalom Cantor and he was becoming a shochet and this day we traveled to a small farm and the homesteader there had three goats that he wanted slaughtered and you know i had never seen anything like this before when you look at an animal that has eyes similar to you it feels very human in a way we were taught that animals have less sophistication and less capacity for thinking or feeling but looking at this animal's eyes and knowing what was about to happen i couldn't help but feel a real weakness and a real a real sadness so you know we're out there for the whole day and it's a long process to prepare the animal to clean its neck to shave the hair away and to ensure that there's no debris that's going to stand between the sharpness of the knife it was a strange space to be in knowing what would be the ultimate result and seeing this animal never being handled in this way before and preparing the animal for slaughter and at the same time comforting this animal and trying to be a calming presence it seemed like a strange combination this particular day represented the type of shkita that i wanted to be a part of small scale close to home down on the farm a type of shkita that could tap into this atavistic sensibility that resonated with where i imagine my great grandparents having the same experience it's an environment where you don't rush you're not burdened to fill a quota and you can focus and be present however on this day you know though all those environmental components were present the educator didn't share the same romantic values the students and i are, are trying to be in the moment and trying to be sensitive and thoughtful and the rabbi was rushing the process along he was saying shecht 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 raising for us tension to a great degree and Probably so for the animal as well yeah and for the animal as well it seemed can i ask you just about the mechanics is the windpipe cut or is it just the carotid arteries so that the blood drains out essentially what any shochet is trying to do is to fully sever the trachea and esophagus there are blood vessels a vargus nerve that are also severed by the knife then so i'm standing on over shalom canter's shoulder and shalom is trying to balance 
being commanding and also tender, and his teacher is raising his voice, saying, Shecht, 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 and Shalom is trying to be present and trying to be focused, and his teacher is getting louder and more irritated. Shecht, Shecht, Shecht. And Shalom is the blessing, and he makes a very intentional, deep incision, and he brings the animal to the ground, and blood is rushing everywhere. It's a large male goat, and there's tremendous pressure and blood and dirt. And as Shalom is trying to comfort the animal and keep it still, blood is saturating his clothing in the dirt below, and it's running close to my shoes. And um, How was the animal reacting? Did it cry out? The animal didn't cry out. It had this look in his eye of panic and calm. It's seemingly gasping for breath that it can't reach, and that's terrifying. And as the blood stops and once the animal stops gasping, there's a moment of intense silence where the animal is peaceful. And that precedes the final stage of the animal's departure, which is called in Hebrew, pirkus, which is a nervous shaking, a, a death rattle. The final... Like a shudder or tremor. Exactly. Yeah. And it's very intense. And once that has completed, the animal lies motionless. What's going through your head? I think a sense of guilt and a sense of being implicated in this process. A deep sense of awe and a deep sense of responsibility. Did you feel scared or maybe discouraged from pursuing being a Shokin in that moment? Did you feel like maybe this is not for me? Well, there's no doubt that I felt tremendously terrified because there's a lot riding on a very sharp and thin facet of the blade, a lot of precision that has to take place in fractions of a second. I felt terrified by that, but also motivated to begin the process of trying out for size. I mean, I, I think I had this sense that this is beyond the pale of any sort of experience that I have, have ever had, closer to any sort of real-life experience that I had ever felt. Being at that liminal stage between life and death, being the gatekeeper for that, it felt like it would shake me in a way that would awaken me, would heighten my sensitivity, would be life impacting in terms of the decisions I would make around food and environment. I think a lot of people might witness that and say, oh, I don't know if I can eat animals. Uh, this is rough. Yeah, there's no doubt, as I've done demonstrations, to see Shrita has turned people into vegetarians. And I think in some way, due to the process of Shrita, I eat a lot less meat than I used to. Why is that? Why do we eat a lot less meat? Yeah. I mean, it's a funny thing for Shokhi to say. Isn't that bizarre? <laughs> <laughs> In part because my mom is a medical librarian and blogger around health and wellness and has educated me on how sustaining and healthy plant-based eating can be. That's a bit separate. The Shrita piece is that I wanted to do my best to only eat meat that I had been involved in. And to go out to the farm for a day of shechita, it's a deep emotional expenditure. And beyond the exhaustion, there's just a sensitivity raised in me 
you know, life has this tremendous value that I need to be aware of and I need to limit taking life out of the world. How long was it from that day to your first slaughter? Maybe three years after that, I had gone through about a, a year-long training and before I received the certification, you're practicing. When you say practice, are you actually slaughtering an animal? Yeah, the training is broken up into three different components. The first piece is the textual legal know-how. And then you have the craftsmanship component, which is when we're given our knife and learning how to sharpen a knife and how to find nicks with our fingernail. And we practiced <laughs> with index cards. And my teacher would say, imagine this is real and I want you to make an incision that doesn't go below the second line. And we practice and practice. And finally, once we have the simulation as good as it could be, you practice with a real live animal and you start with chickens. Okay. And so we show up at the synagogue where we were learning in suburban Westchester, New York, <laughs> in the courtyard. And he has a large cardboard box there. And he opens it up and he says, Andy, you know, it was your idea to set yourself on this path. And it makes sense that you're the first to try this out. I said, no, 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 I, I, I'm not ready. I can't do it. I, I won't. I, I can't. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean? You've been talking this whole time about how you want to do this and how you want to be moved by it and how you want to teach. And he said, you know, do it, do it, do it. And it tapped back into this memory of shacht, shacht, shacht. Then it was not comforting. I knew that what he was demanding of me was to be courageous and to be assertive. And that was horrifying. And he showed us it was magical. Uh, there's a special way of holding the bird called tfisa. And he reaches into the box and he takes the bird and puts it onto the table and says, watch very closely. And he takes the right wing, slowly folding it over the left wing so as not to injure the bird or dislocate or startle it. And he takes his hand and he slides his hand with his palm up into the wing pit so that the palm of his hand is touching the wings, the back of his hand, the chicken's back. And he lifts the bird up and flips it upside down so that his hand remains between its wing pit and the back of the animal is resting now on the back of his hand, the chicken's belly up into the air. And with the tips of his fingers, he reaches to grab a small piece of skin on the back of the neck extending the neck out and the chicken is totally calm and its eyes close it appeared to submit and you knew that this was a grip that had been passed down through generations and on the chicken's neck closest to its head there were very small fine feathers and the feathers below that line were a little bit larger and the rabbi says this line is the optimal space to make your incision and he said, Andy, you're on. And as I tried to back away, he encouraged, encouraged, and I knew that I knew that I had to do it. I knew this was what I was asking for and what my classmates were expecting of me. So I fumbled through this grip and I was not in any way doing this correctly because the chicken it could tell my discomfort and fear and it was squirming and it was puffing itself up and we had to stop and rest and allow it to calm down, allow me to calm down. 
and a few more attempts fumbling through and rabbi helping me. And finally, I had the grip right enough that the rabbi could see that I had the potential to make the right incision. So I took a breath in and I said the blessing and went for it. It's a stroke forward and a stroke back all in one motion without stopping, without pressing, without stabbing. And I missed. It was nowhere deep enough. And I could feel the chicken struggle. I could feel that I had caused this chicken real pain. And there was nothing that was going to save it and nothing that was going to hasten the process. And I could feel the warmth of blood pouring over my hands. And I'm holding this chicken until its life departs. And I felt just this tremendous guilt and fear that I had caused this animal harm and was bringing its life out of the world. And as the animal expired, I put it down and I lost it. I just was shaking and tears were streaming. And it was the type of a cry that I hadn't had since I was a young child. It's a sort of hysterical crying that I see in my three-year-old son. And I was just overwhelmed by what I had done. It didn't feel holy. It didn't feel professional. It didn't feel clean. It didn't feel right. And I walked away from the group and just tried to get a hold of myself. And a few minutes later, the rabbi came back over and he said what I hoped he wouldn't say, let's do it again. And I shook my head and I walked away and he drew me back in. Then with a sense of tenderness and encouragement, that was what I needed. And there was something about failing that drew my focus to do it right and fumbling with the grip and getting some assistance and feeling a little bit more comfortable with it and knowing that it's a very short window of time between holding the chicken and making the incision because it's an unnatural way for the chicken to be handled. And I focus, I breathe, and I make the incision again forward and backwards in one motion and it was deep enough and clean enough and fast enough and again I'm holding this bird and my hands are soaked in its blood and it's shaking in uh, the natural way that it does as its life departs and I put it down as it comes to a peaceful rest and I felt a relief and a release and a sense of completion you know, it was a moment in some way, it feels tough to say this, but it just, I think, a moment of, of celebration, of bringing what felt like holiness in what could be macabre or a dark space. It was the first time that I had brought an animal's life out of the world in the hopes to sustain my own. And that afternoon, I processed the bird, you know, plucking its feathers and eviscerating cleaning and soaking and salting. And it was a Friday afternoon. Shabbat was on the horizon. And my wife and I that night were having dinner together, just the two of us. And we had produce from Zaid's farm outside of Binghamton, New York. And I had this chicken that I had processed, raised in a local farm in the Hudson Valley. 
And it was the first time that I knew the story of where my food was coming from. You know, whether I was making it up or, or not, it felt deeply authentic to me at the time, and I guess it, it still does. It tasted like it should. It tasted clean and fresh and holy and connected. I've got a heart that don't quit. I'm a victim of distraction. My name is Chris Nowak. I'm a CPA that lives in Denver, Colorado. And when I'm not doing that, I'm usually chasing some critter. So I'm very lucky, I've been very blessed to be able to juggle work and my passion for hunting. What do you hunt? Elk, deer, wild pigs, ducks, geese, an occasional pheasant. What do you hunt with? Uh, primarily a bow. If the hunting season's coming to a close, and I don't think I got enough meat to get me through the winter, I will not hesitate to pick up a gun and do a, what we call a depredation hunt or a management hunt. That's like you're thinning out herds? Yes, and they usually only allow uh, antlerless or female species of whatever you're hunting. So if they're overpopulated, since the females are the ones that are the reproductive engine, whatever the Department of Wildlife determines is a suitable number of animals to live in that particular area, then they determine how many the hunters can take. Nowadays, we have all the corporate farms and ranches, but up to 150 years ago, everybody got their meat from market hunters. Instead of a rancher, there were guys that went out, hunted, provided meat, brought it every day into town, and it could be deer, elk, bear, moose, whatever they could get their hands on. Well, through market hunting and the expansion of the U.S. to the western states in the 1800s, they decimated the buffalo most of the white-tailed deer in this country, most of the elk, most of the bighorn sheep, most of the bear. And right around that early 1900s is when the big conservation movement of hunters started, where they finally realized, we can't be doing this because... We're not going to have anything left to hunt in 10 years. Yeah. Theodore Roosevelt was a big hunter, and he said, okay, we can't just allow everybody 24-7, anytime they want, to go out and kill for food. So they banned market hunting. And that was the evolution then of our modern-day farms, ranching. But it was the guys who actually enjoyed hunting is why people today can go to Rocky Mountain National Park and see wild sheep, see elk, see deer. That's why now in the whole Midwest and the Southeast, record numbers of deer every year to the point where now people are complaining about them. And then all the other species that go along with it, the bird life, the songbirds, the predators then, and the mountain lions. That conservation effort is why, a hundred years later, we have this bountiful... You realize you have to police yourselves. and Yeah. Would you consider yourself conservationist? Oh, of course. I'm part of Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Ducks Unlimited. So, yeah, I'm trying to give back. And then, hopefully, future generations, my nieces and nephews, will you know be able to enjoy what I've done. Now, you're talking about packing up for the winter. Do you eat everything you hunt? I primarily won't hunt anything unless I can eat it. Why is that? If I'm not going to eat this animal, why should I kill it? That's a philosophy of most of the guys that I hunt with. I got a moose hunt scheduled in Newfoundland. Okay, getting there and shooting the moose is the easy part. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say easy, but that <laughs> is the logistically easy part, is the actual act of shooting the moose. The hard part now is how do I get 200 pounds of meat back into my freezer without it spoiling? The last time we went, we took a freezer with us 
put it in the back of his F-250, ran out to Newfoundland, and we shot two moose. We plugged the freezer in, put the parts in, they froze, and then we picked up the freezer, about 10 of us, and put it in the back of his truck, and we drove home. And the meat was just phenomenal. And I don't know if you're a meat eater, but it's better than any store-bought or any kind of Morton's filet you've ever had. When was the first time you ever hunted? I went when I was five with my father. Five? First time we went pheasant hunting. And I was like the little bird dog. I was following the dogs around, and they were letting me run around in the bushes and whatnot. And after that, I kept bugging him to go hunting with him more. And when I was eight, we did a stalk. Here I am behind him, and he's, you know, be quiet, you know. And he snuck up, and to my amazement, he pulled back, and he shot this big fat doe, a white-tailed deer, and it ran off a couple of yards and died and expired. And, and then we processed it. And When you say processed it, you mean gutted it, cut it up? Yeah, we processed what you can in the field. You're removing the entrails and stuff, and then we brought the carcass home. Were you a little scared? Did it gross you out? Oh, no. A little eight-year-old boy? I was probably more excited than he was. <laughs> you were tough from the get-go. I don't know if it's tough when you grow up with it, you know? So my dad's friends hunted, and when you're hearing all the hunting stories... You're eager to... I had my little fiberglass bow, and I'd be in the backyard shooting squirrels or rabbits, whatever I could, waiting for the day that you were finally large enough to pull a real bow back and actually join the boys and hunt. One of those rites of passage as a young boy growing up in northern Wisconsin. I mean, the only thing I was scared of, and I think this is probably all hunters go through this, was the dark. You know, those first couple times when you were young and you knew your dad was with you and he was 200 yards away in another tree, all in that darkness and the fear of getting lost. You know, you get turned around in a swamp. It's a strange feeling. What about the fear to... of getting shot by one of your buddies or something? Like, if you're 200 <laughs> yards away, there everybody's looking for some movement in the bushes. Well, now, unfortunately, that is the uneducated... Uh, <laughs> Go ahead, don't hold back. <laughs> ...lay person's view of hunters. Is right. that if a twig moves, we just unload <laughs> on it with our submachine gun. Like Dick Cheney, right? Yeah, like Dick Cheney. <laughs> And that is so far from the tr- I mean, anytime you're growing up, there is a great amount of fathers yelling at us anytime we did anything remotely close to pointing the gun in the wrong direction or handling the gun in the wrong way. I mean, it was just pounded into you that this is not a toy. Yeah. And what you're shooting at, <laughs> you've got to know what it is because there are people out there in the woods. And you have to thoroughly identify what ever you're shooting at, thoroughly identify what's behind the animal that you're shooting at, because where's that bullet going to go if you miss? And we call that the backstop. If your backstop behind you know, that animal is not adequate, like if it's on a ridge top, and if you shoot at that animal and miss, now that bullet's going another mile somewhere. Could go anywhere. Yeah, it could be somebody on the other side of that ridge. In most states, if you want to hunt, you've got to pass a test. It's like getting a driver's license. You sound like a real enlightened hunter, but what percentage of all hunters do you think are like you, and what percentage are out there just a little more irresponsible? I would say, as far as safety, it's probably around 100%. Yeah, there's some bad apples, so it's okay, it's 97%. Okay, but you do it only for food. What percentage of hunters are just doing it for sport or a little more callous than you, maybe? First of all, wasting of any kind of meat on a wild animal through hunting is illegal. You are not allowed. It is illegal to shoot an animal, cut its horns off, or cut whatever piece you want off and let the animal lay there. That is all the states, 
ethics of hunting. You cannot do that. I didn't know that. So everybody hunts for food. There's no such thing as hunting purely for sport? Yes, there are hunters out there that all they want to do is shoot an animal and put the rack on their wall. There are guys out there that do not particularly like wild game. But if a guy goes out and he knows he's a trophy hunter, he'll harvest that animal and then he'll bring the meat. Now it's bringing up in all the states. They call it Hunters for the Hungry or some other charitable organization. And they will come and take the animal. There are avenues and they must do something with the meat that they harvest. So there's nobody out there just like blowing animals away for the fun of it. That just doesn't exist. (laughs) And I'll tell you, the hunting community does not put up with that. I mean, if somebody's in the field and I see somebody shoot an elk, cut the horns off and walk away, I'm reporting them. Have you seen that? Fortunately, I have never seen that. Now, what about canned hunting? Within the hunting community, it's called high-fenced operations. Fish in a barrel, basically. Yeah. To a true hunter and to 98% of the hunters, they just laugh or disregard, if you want, the few individuals that go out there and will hunt these operations. It's not against the law. If I own 2,000 acres in certain states, we'll allow this. I can put a fence around my 2,000 acres, throw a bunch of animals in it, and uh, guys will come and pay, and uh, I'll walk them out into the back 40 and have them shoot some kind of pen-raised animal. And they could feel like they hunted, but they didn't really. There isn't anybody in the hunting community that's going to tell you that guy went on a hunt. All he did is went down to the local farmer, picked out his cow, and shot it. Is it a wild animal? No, it's a domesticated animal. Just because it's a deer and elk doesn't mean it's wild. But first of all, that's very expensive to do. For me to go down to Texas, which has a lot of these game farms, I don't know what other states have them. I think Wisconsin's got one where they grow these monster animals in a 600-acre enclosure and feed them a bunch of steroids, and they get these horns that are just freaks of nature. So they get to put this big rack on their wall, and it looks like they're a big game hunter. But that's a $15,000 go pick my deer out. Nobody can afford it. I can't afford it. Well, first of all, I wouldn't do it because the ethics, and it's like, I'm sorry, I don't need an ego to have this big rack on my wall. Anybody who's knowledgeable walked into someone's office with one of those freaks of nature would go, okay, what pen did you shoot that out of? How do you think about the animal's experience or the animal suffering? What does that mean to you? Well, there's no denying that you're killing the animal. And it is suffering. I mean, regardless, whether that is for three seconds, for a minute, and it's due to respect of the animal, we try to minimize at all cost. You know, how can, when I make my stock and when I make my shot, my ethics tell me as a hunter that I am going to ensure that when I do pull the trigger, when I do release my arrow, that I got a clean shot that will ensure a quick kill. So I'm sure there must have been times where you missed that shot. You know, hunting's not a perfect sport. I have shot animals that ran off and I've tracked and I've come across them and they were, you know, they couldn't get up anymore. They were suffering. You see that and you want to stop it. That's correct. There's no hunter in the world wants to see any animal suffer. Let's put it this way. When you look at the investment that hunters put into all their gear, the time spent in the woods, when you have that opportunity finally to fill your tag and to kill that animal, the last thing you want to do is wound it and chase it halfway around the world. You want to get that animal, and you want to get it as quickly. Empathy aside, just 
practically you want to get it. Yeah, empathy aside, you might not get another opportunity. Have I lost some animals? Unfortunately, yes, I have. You know, no hunter's going to tell you that they have not shot an animal and it got away. So you go through all this trouble and expense. Why do you do it? You know, I started when I was five. I guess that's just what you do. I just love the outdoors. I mean, it's kind of like my church. I love being on the mountainside. I love being out in nature. I love watching all the other animals and interactions and, and how nature works. And, you know, I've seen some amazing things. And hunting is 95% enjoying nature and hiking, patiently waiting on a stand or just being out in the woods. And it's 5% hunting. Most of the time when you go hunting, you will not see anything that you're after. But that's not really answering it because you could just go hiking then. Yes, but it's that 5%. So what are you getting in that 5% of the time? Is it just the thrill of it? Yeah, that thrill, the, yes, we are killing an animal. But is it the actual killing that you enjoy? No. It's kind of like my wits against the animal's wits. I mean, those animals sight hearing, smell of an elk and a deer are, they're hard animals to shoot with a bow. They're very, very elusive, very intelligent. Then the chase and getting closer and closer, that anticipation, being able to calm your heart and your excitement and finally making a good shot to kill that animal. It's an adrenaline rush. I mean, I'm a bow hunter, right? The average bow hunter is successful 10% of the time. Okay, if I'm a bloodthirsty killer, why would I choose a sport where I can only satisfy my urge to kill 10% of the time? I mean, I haven't shot an elk with my bow in two years, and I've probably have spent 45 to 60 days doing it. Now, am I a bloodthirsty killer? Now, you don't think I think that, right? No, no, I know, oh, okay. but I'm just saying I think some people might. You know, people hunt to satisfy our desire to kill things. And that's not true. I think you're right that that perception is out there, that you must take pleasure in the killing part. If it's just about meat, go to the store and get some meat. If I could economically go buy an elk steak that's organic, free range, you know, I'd almost got to look in the mirror and go, would I hunt? The only way I right now can get that organic elk meat is to hunt it. There was this opinion floating around on the Internet and, of course, the hunters pass this around. Some woman wrote it to a little local newspaper somewhere. Shame on you, hunters. You are hurting animals. You should get your meat from the store like the rest of us where no animals have been harmed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, what? That's the thing. There, It seems like there are a lot of meat eaters out there who look down their nose at hunters. I'm like, you eat meat, you know, somebody killed it for you. I feel like I wouldn't have the heart to put a stun gun to a pig's head. So if I can't do it myself, I shouldn't have somebody else do it behind some high walls that I don't have to know about. Right. I mean, the only other thing I have to that statement is that people can be a vegetarian because our society allows it. But, I mean, society lets people be carnivores, too. Yes. But you go live in Africa and just see how your vegetarian lifestyle works out. They're eating anything they can get their hands on. I don't think any vegan would say everybody in the world and every condition has to be vegan, but if you can, people in cities, it's an easy choice. So right. if you can oh, okay. and you want to make a choice that yes, you can. it's based on being empathetic, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think it is either. I have nothing against vegetarians as long as they don't 
give any money to any aversion that prevents me from hunting, right. <laughs> you know, or that at least they understand my perspective as I understand theirs. And we just agree to disagree. I do respect that you're connected to your food in a way that most people aren't. I think there's a lot of people out there who couldn't stomach to kill an animal and they love meat and they don't have any idea what goes into it. Every time I go and I pull out an elk steak and I share it with my friends, the memory of that elk, we discuss it. It's the reminder of the hunt, you know, and reminder of that animal. Oh, which one is this, Chris? Oh, this is the one I shot here in the Colorado on the, in the Gore Range. Oh, that was a nice bull. Oh, remember that? Well, well, you know, you're eating something that you had direct responsibility for. I mean, yes, we have great respect for the animal. We do understand that an animal gave up its life. I've seen animals die in front of me. You see that relaxing of their muscles and, you know, their spirit or whatever is, is ascending to wherever. So what are you feeling that moment when you see that? There's a very solemn moment there of thanks where, you know, like a little prayer that you just say to the animal, or it's more to the hunting gods or to nature of thank you. You know, I killed this animal and I will give it due respect and eat all of it. And most of the guys that I hunt would do that. They'll just put their hand on the animal and you tell they're saying some kind of a prayer huh. or some kind of a meditation. That's so different than the picture I have in my head of most hunters, which is a bunch of drunk guys sitting up on a deer stand, you know, throwing cans on the ground, waiting for something to clomp by and blast it. Yeah, well, yes, there's the Bubba Hunter out there, <laughs> but that is not the... I mean, I can't say that doesn't happen. But it's not the majority in your mind. It's not the norm. Well, I think hunters have a real respect for life and death. We see death. I killed an animal. It died here in front of me, and I did that. So there's, I think, a real respect for life. It must bring you in touch more with your own mortality. Not just my mortality, but the circle of life on Earth. I mean, when you look at how life evolved in the food chain and how did that get created, you know, big fish eat little fish. And unfortunately, sometimes some things have to die for you to live. I'm just glad we're on top of the food chain. <laughs> fish eat worms. Birds eat worms and fish. People eat fish and birds. And worms eat people. My name is Mirko Betti. I am an associate professor at the University of Alberta, Canada. And we have started to work to develop in vitro meat. How far away do you think it is? It's very difficult to make predictions, but the possibility that this meat go into the market in, let's say, 10 to 15 years. It can even be faster, but at the moment, you know, I want to just stay on a pessimistic side. <laughs> right. Mark Post in Netherlands is very close to get the first samples, you know, produced in the lab. But to get from the lab to the next level, which is, you know, the scaling up is another story. So it will require an interdisciplinary team, engineering, food scientists, stem cell researchers, and so on. You should get your meat from the store where no animals have been harmed. And whenever it is able to be mass-produced, how do you think it will start coming into the market? My feeling is the first products will come in a form of processed meat products like chicken nuggets or sausages. Consumers always say that they prefer the so-called natural food, but they are buying a lot of processed meat products. 
And this, in my opinion, is good because at the beginning, we will be able to produce a product that has a texture that is more close to a processed meat product than an intact muscle-like steak. You know, a lot of people, they say to me, hey, you travel around all the time, you must not be able to get good food to eat. But I love hot dogs. And you can get a hot dog any place, so it's easy for me to eat right. But people still come up, they say, oh, don't eat hot dogs. They have really weird things in them, you know. But it doesn't bother me because I love animal lips. <laughs> and I guess rat feces is one about my favorite things, I guess. I do enjoy it. So... Um I want to do another exercise with you to give you a sense of the power and scope of invisibility. 19,011 farmed animals are killed in the U.S. every... What do you think? Minute? Hour? Week? Day? If you guessed minute, you guessed correct. This adds up to approximately 10 billion animals per year. But think about it. How many farmed animals have you seen? How many have you seen this month? or this year, how many of them have you seen in your lifetime? Given that the U.S. population of farmed animals is 32 times the human population, where are they? Given that these animals' body parts are literally everywhere we turn, why don't we ever see them alive? We don't see the animals who become our food because we're not supposed to. They are not, as carnistic industry would have us believe, living on happy mom and pop farms. The Little Farm. Farmer Small lives on a farm. He gets up early in the morning. He goes to the barn to milk the cows. He takes the cows to pasture. Farmer Small feeds the pigs. They are very hungry. So are the chickens, the ducks, and the turkeys. Farmer Small has a tractor to help him with his work. Each day, when evening comes, Farmer Small gathers the eggs. He brings the cows in from the pasture, then he goes into the house to eat his supper, and the sun goes down. And that's all about Farmer Small. Hi, this is Paul Shapiro at the Humane Society of the United States, where I serve as Vice President of Farm Animal Protection. Some states have passed laws recently called ag-gag laws that try to criminalize undercover whistleblowing exposés at factory farms. For example, Utah, just this past year, enacted a new law that says that you can't take any photos or video of an animal agricultural enterprise without the owner's permission. They know that there's something to hide. I mean, there have been so many whistleblowing exposés that have led to criminal convictions, that have led to meat recalls, that have led to all types of other problems being exposed, and the meat industry's response has not been to try to prevent the abuses, but rather to try to prevent people from finding out about those abuses. Iowa just made it a crime to misrepresent yourself on a job application at an agricultural facility. So let's say you're an investigator and they ask you on the job application, are you affiliated with an animal protection group? If you answer no, that could be a crime right there. They don't say that embellishing your resume if you're applying at a bank would be a crime. 
This is designed solely to protect agribusiness. These birds are terrified. I'm Professor Gisela Kaplan of the Center for Neuroscience and Animal Behavior at the University of New England in Armidale, Australia. We're still very much in the Descartian mode, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, meaning that if you're not self-aware, you don't feel emotions. That animals can't think, therefore they're not being and we don't have any moral responsibility towards them. And I think that's a lot of claptrap. <laughs> and i tell you why. The system of vertebrates, the brain, the nerves, and all of the basic structural features of sentient beings are the same in design. We still have 60% in common genetically with a mouse. And we have the same nervous system as a mouse. And therefore, certainly where pain is concerned, what a mouse feels is what we feel and vice versa. But because pain is an internal state, it was discarded. Humans, you can ask, do you feel happy today or don't you? But up to even a few decades ago, even neonatal humans that had to have operations did not get anesthetics. And the death rate was, of course, extremely high. And there's an additional point in animals that most animals that experience pain need to mask it in the wild. Because if they're in pain, they're vulnerable, and if they're vulnerable, they could get eaten. Even our dogs do that extremely well, and quite often the only way you can detect any problem with an animal is either because it limps or doesn't feed or keeps its eyes shut. And the best way to show that is give it painkillers, and then that behavior stops. And I think anyone who has a dog or a cat or any pet has some sense that animals can feel pain. But how do we know that animals have emotions? Well, all certainly all vertebrates have an amygdala, and that is the center in the brain that regulates fear and suffering. And fear and suffering from an evolutionary point was absolutely essential because if an animal cannot sense danger, its chances of survival could be very limited indeed. Fear responses are very much intact right to the lower vertebrates, and there's no getting around that those kinds of emotions are definitely felt by any farm animal. And we know very well that these stress levels exist and even shown in rats when experimenters moved a rat from one room to the next and in the next room it gets some painful injection. The next time that same person comes around, they literally screech in fear. Now, in cows it's harder to study if they're sent to the slaughterhouse precisely because they don't come back. Every Purdue chicken has one of these tags on it. It means you're getting a fresh, tender, tasty young chicken. I make sure of that because every one of these tags has my name on it. Believe me, when it comes to chickens, I'm tougher than you are. My name is Josh Bach. I work at the Humane Society of the United States, Director of Corporate Policy for the Farm Animal Protection Division. In 2004, I worked undercover at a Purdue slaughter plant in Shell, Maryland. So I was at Compassion Over Killing. It's a farm animal protection organization. And I was doing a lot of outreach, standing in front of what's called our Fonavision van. It was a big van that we opened up the side door and a, a television came out and played factory farming footage. We used to park it in downtown Washington, D.C. People would surround the van, watch the video, and I'd give out leaflets. 
And there was a point where I, along with all my colleagues at the organization, and at the time there were only three, <laughs> we came to the conclusion that we can only reach so many people this way. We have to do something to get more attention. We decided that I would be in the best position to do this job. Why was that? Well, I was male, uh -huh. and I still am, <laughs> and in the slaughter plan, every person I saw was male. Then I didn't know exactly what I was getting into in terms of how I would emotionally react. Okay, so uh, you go to apply for, I mean, did you have to select clothes? Yeah, I wore jeans and an old shirt I got at Goodwill. That was pretty much my outfit. Okay, so day one. You know, it's kind of a, a surreal experience waking up at 3.45 a.m. knowing, wow, this is the day I'm doing it. And I wanted to do a good job. So I did everything that was necessary in the morning to get ready. I know you have to be careful about details, but uh, I'm just wondering how you wire yourself up. Yeah, that stuff is probably left unsaid. Okay. These days, the equipment is a lot more advanced than it was back when I did it. But yeah, the, it was definitely hidden. I remember driving to the plant, which is about 10 minutes away from where I was staying. Did you just live in a motel for that month? I did, yeah. Then there was no one on the road. It was so early in the morning, so dark. I pulled up and I parked in a parking lot where other workers are parked. And I just took a deep breath and said to myself, let's go. It's dark out. It's pretty chilly. And there's gravel. And you get out of your car and you smell the slaughter plant. It hits you right in the face. What did it smell like? Oh, God. It's just blood and feces and, and just death. And it just permeates the air. And I noticed at the end of the day, it's stuck on my skin. It's in my hair. Like, it's in my nostrils. And so I walked towards the worker entry, and there are other folks who are walking in. What does it look like? I mean, uh, what does it look like? Yeah. I guess it looks like a factory. It makes sense because, you know, animals have basically been turned into widgets within a machine. And there's a loading zone, and that's where the trucks would bring the chickens. And I walked towards this big, dark building. And just opened the door, and there were workers already there getting ready for the day. You know, you put on boots. It's like a locker room? Yes. You know, you put on the overalls. It covers from your neck all the way down to your feet. So for me, I just put this over my current clothing. And then kind of just hung out there for a few minutes. Do you know what you're supposed to do or who you're supposed to talk to? or are you just? I'm just sitting there. I'm just following the crowd. It wasn't like people were very gregarious. They're not going up and like, hey, how's it going? Nice to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, congratulations on getting the job here. We're going to be best of buddies. Or... <laughs> no one is happy to be there. They're waking up early to kill animals all day. People are drinking coffee, kind of have their head down, tired. It must be strange because you're surrounded by all these sleepy people and your adrenaline must be going. You're exactly right. I was certainly the opposite of them. I was acutely aware of everything that was happening. And then someone comes in saying, all right, let's go get started. He notices me and he's like, all right, well, I'm going to show you how to do it. And he took me into the shackling area. The smell, as bad as it was on the outside, it was four times worse on the inside. They hit you very, very hard. You almost want to vomit, but you get used to it. So I see just lines of shackles and a conveyor belt underneath the shackles. And it was so loud, you have to yell. And so he just put me in one of the areas where a worker stands. 
How close are you person to person? Inches. Your shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. And then the birds started coming through. A truck delivered the birds. The birds were dumped. The conveyor belt ran and the birds were coming through. And that's when it hit me. This is real. I'm seeing this right now. These animals being slaughtered. And he just said, look what I do. He stood facing the conveyor belt, grabbed a chicken by the legs, lifts the chicken upside down, and slams the bird's legs into the shackle. And then he just shackled two chickens. And he's like, you do that. And that was it. That was my instructions. And the shackles are metal. It's really like a giant paperclip. And the way it's designed is that if you put the legs of the chickens in it, the legs get caught. Nothing. So it's squeezing them uncomfortably. It's not even like... Oh, completely. It's horrible. You're basically just wedging their legs in. Yes. How is the bird reacting? In many cases, the bird screams. And it completely surprised me. I never knew that they screamed. They were terrified. They would try to scratch you to free themselves. They would use their wings to hit you. I think when people think of chickens, they think of little birds. But these birds are giant and their wings hurt you when they hit you. They've been selectively bred to grow huge. These chickens are just 45 days old, yet they're so giant they can barely move and their legs have been twisted and tangled in all different directions. They're just freaks of nature. So then I just had to start shackling. At first it was difficult for me because you actually have to use some force to get the birds in the shackle. And I wanted their last seconds to be as painless as I possibly could make it. And at first I was very gentle, but it just wouldn't work. I couldn't shackle them. And he's like, you have to do this harder. And so I did it harder. And then you're just left and that's supposed to be your job for the rest of the day, throwing chickens into shackles. It's all you do. If you want to imagine what it's like, just face one direction. And all you're doing is seeing animals piled on top of each other on a conveyor belt that reaches you, and all you do is pick up animals who are fighting for their life, who are pecking at you, scratching at you, trying to get away, grabbing them, then shackling them. And that is all you do all day long. And that's pretty much the only time in the process where there's a human in contact with the chicken. Once it gets into the machine, then the machine is doing everything? Yes. Birds are then on the conveyor where it is brought to the next slicing area. And right before the next slicing, they're put into electrical current, which is meant to immobilize them. It isn't meant to knock them out. So unfortunately, they still do feel the pain, but they are supposed to be stable as they have their necks slit open. And oftentimes these birds miss the electrical current completely, which ensures that they're still moving around. They're still fighting to try to get out and missing the, the slicer. So sometimes they have their wings slit or part of their legs slit. And the reason why that matters so much is that they'll then go into the feather removal tank, which is boiling water, fully conscious. It's not some freak occurrence. It is standard that millions of chickens across the country in a given year miss the neck slicer and go into the tank fully conscious where they're boiled to death. So you get to the end of your first day. You just kind of head back to motel and look at your footage. Um, I called up headquarters every day just to let them know I was okay. And on the way home, stopped and got some lunch, Taco Bell. Because they have a little bit of a vegetarian option. Uh, yeah, they have bean burrito, <laughs> which was my standard lunch for many weeks on end. Um, yeah, I took a shower immediately. You're just covered with every type of fluid you can imagine. And then I reviewed the footage. 
and then finally nighttime hit and ate dinner and maybe relax for you know an hour or so. That must be a little surreal to go from that just to like sitting in a motel room watching a sitcom or something That's and then right. knowing you're going right back. Yeah, I try to watch as much sports as possible just to get my mind off of it. And yeah, I just made sure that I got a wake-up call and set the alarm. So I'd wake up at 3.45 or so and put my head down and did it all over again the next day. And then what were your weekends like? After work on Friday, I would drive back to where I lived. I just wanted to kind of relax and, you know, I didn't really want to go out or go to parties or it kind of felt a little wrong to me. And I know it shouldn't. Right. People want to small talk with you. What's going on? You're like, ah, I don't really want to talk. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. it's also secret. Sure. Did you find it hard, you know, if you're reading or at a movie to just be in that place and not have the imagery coming back to you all the time? Uh, yeah, I thought about it all the time during the investigation and for weeks and months on and after the investigation, just knowing like what I just saw and I was a part of because I wasn't working there. So you were there for six weeks total? Yeah. I could just imagine you after a few days saying like, I, well, I got a lot of footage. I don't you know. Yeah. <laughs> Can I get out of here? That's right. I mean, how did you decide how long to stay? Investigators want to show a pattern of abuse. And if we document something that happens one day, one can write it out and say, oh, well, that was just one day. So when, when you got to the last day? It was an odd feeling leaving that day thinking, wow. Uh, I'm never going to be in that same situation again. I'm never going to see these guys again. I said goodbye the same as I'd say goodbye any other day. You so, didn't tell them you were quitting? No. I just never showed up again. Which probably happens there, not that infrequently. Yeah. Right? It's a job when if someone doesn't show up to work, it's not like, wow, why is Frank not here today? It's <laughs> odd. But you just move on. Nobody uh, called you and said, hey, buddy, you feeling okay? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Human resources wasn't very active in that. <laughs> um, and so it was odd. But it was, it was also odd leaving, knowing that this is going to get media. And this plant and these people are going to be exposed for being cruel to animals. This was Purdue, you said? Yes. So how did, what was their reaction? They admitted that their employees acted, quote unquote, too rough. But they defended how animals are slaughtered within their processing facilities, which is a euphemism that they use for slaughter plants. And was there much of a public reaction? There was. You know, a lot of folks contacted our organization. And what was nice is that people from all walks of life, for the first time in many instances, saw the video and contacted us and say, you know, hey, I saw this footage, it's horrible, and because of that, I'm changing my diet, and and I want to support the work that you guys are doing. That must have been very moving for you after going through that ordeal to see that it had results. It was nice to see the outcome. These animals have no voice. So just knowing that the public got to see at least their final moments brought a lot of solace to the work that I did. getting my PhD, I was hired by one of the most important food companies in Italy to develop new meat products. By doing that, you know, I had to know the different steps involved in the meat production. And it's horrible. You've got the slaughterhouse. house, sometimes you can see animals. They see where they are going. 
and they try you know to resist and they scream you know you can see it's really not a nice place Oh man, I just watched the videos that you're going to be hearing a little bit of and I'll never be more thankful that this is an audio-only podcast. It was rough. I feel literally nauseated right now. Everything that you hear a sound of, I saw. There's going to be one minute of Temple Grandin, followed by a two-minute excerpt of a little documentary called Farm to Fridge. If you really don't want to experience it, you can skip ahead three minutes and 20 seconds to 123.25. I have a hard time impressing upon people the importance of small details that will make the animals calmer. I want to show you what the lighting should look like to get an animal into a head restraint. Solid on the sides, but he sees a lighted place to put his head. But he doesn't see any people up ahead. One that's too dark, they'll never stick their head in there. You've got to get in there and see what are the animals actually seeing. If you leave an animal in a head restraint device too long, it can be stressful. If you have to prod it six or seven times to get it in and it's blocking, and then once you get him locked in, you let him stand there and fight it, then you're going to get elevated stress. It's extremely important to design it and light it in such a way that your animal walks in, you clamp the head, boom, you do it. Vocalization scoring works for cattle and pigs really well. In fact, research in pigs has shown that the amount of squealing is related to the amount of stressed meat. If you go out to the stunning area and you hear cattle mooing and bellowing and bellowing, you've got something wrong out there. For nearly their entire four-month pregnancies, mother sows are locked in narrow metal stalls barely larger than their own bodies. Soon after birth, piglets are castrated by workers who cut into their skin and rip out their testicles. Next, the workers chop off their tails. Both of these painful procedures are nearly always done without anesthesia. Piglets who become sick or injured or who are not growing quickly enough are killed. Common killing methods include throwing animals into bins and painfully gassing them. Others are killed by being slammed headfirst into the ground. Because male chicks don't lay eggs and do not grow quickly enough to be raised profitably for meat, they are typically thrown into giant grinding machines while still alive. This practice is deemed standard and acceptable by the egg industry. The females have it even worse. To reduce pecking, induced by overcrowded living conditions, workers use a hot blade or laser to remove part of the chick's beaks. This mutilation can cause both acute and chronic pain. After debeaking, the birds are moved to cages where they will spend the rest of their lives. Sick or injured birds often have their necks broken. Others are clubbed to death. Cows produce milk for the same reasons that humans do, to nourish their young. But calves on dairy farms are dragged away from their mothers and violently killed, all so that humans can have the milk instead. Another routine practice is dehorning, burning into the calves' skulls to remove their budding horns. Painkillers are rarely used. 
let's say you were to take your dog to the vet to get him neutered, and your vet takes out a razor blade and he cuts your dog's testicles off without any painkiller. Your vet could lose his license, he'd get thrown in jail, charged with criminal animal cruelty. But when the victim isn't a dog, but rather a pig, then because it's a standard agricultural practice, it's exempted from most states' anti-cruelty codes. Hi, Uncle Marty. Daniel, what do I owe the pleasure? I'm doing another podcast. I thought we could talk again. Oh, yeah? Yeah, people really liked you last time. Helen, I'm a hit on the internet. You're married to a celebrity. <laughs> you want my autograph? Why not? Yeah, she doesn't want it. <laughs> so what's the new episode about? It's on eating animals. Mm, just from the title, I think I have a sense of your opinions. Uh, because I say animals? If you said it's about corned beef, it would have different implications. Right. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. What are you thinking? I'm thinking of something I don't know if it's okay to say. You want me to tell you something is okay before I know what it is? Would you mind? <laughs> I, I can't, Wojcik, but I'll tell you what. If it's not okay, I promise I'll forgive you. Oh. Eventually. Oh, boy. Oh, go ahead. Okay, uh, so I've been doing a lot of research for the show, and I've seen a lot of horrible things. And when I look at footage of factory farms, it reminds me of... My, of those Holocaust movies they used to show us in school every year. Oh, wow. I mean, the animals are confined and miserable and powerless and killed with such efficiency. And you thought that would offend me? I don't know. I thought maybe. It, I know the Holocaust is an overused analogy, and I just can't help seeing the connection. I don't want to insult the memory of all the people that were killed. You I just... just want to compare them to chickens. <sighs> oh, I'm just teasing. Listen, hold on. I think I have something that will help you feel better. Really? Yep. Just a sec. Let me find it. Ah, okay. Here we go. This is from a novel called Enemies, a Love Story. As often as Herman had witnessed the slaughter of animals and fish, he always had the same thought. In their behavior toward creatures, all men were Nazis. The smugness with which man could do with other species that he pleased exemplifies the most extreme racist theories. The principle that might is right. What do you think about that? That's good. Who is that? That's by Isaac Bashevis Singer, a quality Jew by most estimations. If he can make the comparison, I think you're safe. Oh, well, thanks. No problem. Can I play music from Schindler's List? Don't push it. Okay, okay. So when did you first read that? I don't know, a long time ago. But it didn't change your mind. Uh, what can I say? I'm a city boy. A chicken, to me, is not a bird. It's a salad or a sandwich or a soup. Yeah. Look, I accept that I'm responsible for killing animals, but it, I don't do it out of hatred. And maybe that's why the Nazi comparison is not good. They weren't rounding up Jews for sustenance. They were doing it for hatred. Yeah, but the, re <laughs> the results are the same for the ones that get killed. I'm not sure that's so. I think I would rather be killed by a cannibal than a Nazi. But I take your point. Anyway... Uh, so did I do okay? Am I still a webcast sensation? <laughs> you did great, Uncle Marty. Thanks. Good. Well, listen, it's dinner time. Don't ask me what we're having. Okay, I won't. Give my love to Aunt Helen. So long, kid. Bye-bye. You get to know a lot butchering meat. We're made up of the same things. Flesh and blood, tissue, organs. I love to work with pigs. 
The nearest thing in nature to the flesh of a man is the flesh of a pig. Most people think in the other direction. We like to think we're not animals. We're always scrambling for evidence. That's what separates us from the animals. Religion, science, commemorative coins. Animals don't have commemorative coins. Our communication or language use. The posable thumbs. Non-reproductive sex. The ability to stand upright or to fashion tools. Being able to take abstractions and turn metaphors into things as powerful as the most visceral of sensory effects. Divorce. <laughs> the only thing that separates us from the animals is our ability to accessorize. That's why we let dogs poop in public, but not people. We are not allowed to do anything in public that will remind us that we're animals. No pissing, no pooping, no playing with ourselves, no butt sniffing. All the Asians are out, defic, urine, fornic, and no nudity, because clothes help us forget that we do all those things. They help us forget we've got all those animal parts. That's another one, clothes. Animals don't wear clothes. Now, eating is animal, but we're allowed to do it because we can do it without getting naked. But there are a lot of rules to make sure that our eating doesn't look anything like animals. You can't take the food with your mouth, and usually not even with your hands. You have to use utensils. So we're not really eating, we're just putting food in our mouths, and then who knows what happens. And make sure you chew with your mouth closed. Many of the things that are most natural to us, we have to do behind closed doors. We are all in the closet about our animalness. Which is why comedians have jobs. All the things that we can't do in public, the things that cause us to laugh because we're shocked to hear them discussed out loud, that's the comedian's bread and butter. Those commercials with the dogs and the cats in the shelters break our hearts. In America, three to four million are euthanized every year. Thirty times as many pigs are slaughtered. But for some reason, we don't play Sarah McLaughlin songs for them. Paul Reiser once said, We eat the ugly and save the cute. It's so much harder to sympathize with a chicken or a trout. It's not fair. Not, not only do the good-looking get all the dates and all the acting work, but they also get not to be eaten. At least animals aren't superficial. They'll eat anything. They don't care if it's gorgeous, just so long as it's smaller than them. Ah, you might say, but what about that? There's the food chain. Animals eat animals. It's natural. Really? So our morality is not one of those things that separates us from the animals? I mean, I used to say it too. For a long time I felt comfortable saying, well, the shark eats the seal, the lion eats the gazelle, why shouldn't I eat a cow? But at some point I thought... Do I really want to take my moral cues from sharks? You know, some animals kill their rivals for mates. Some eat their young. We are separate from the other animals. We have art and literature. We have a repository of knowledge that lets us build on the progress of previous generations and advance. Really, vegans and animal eaters alike recognize our superiority. Carnivores say that's what justifies eating the lower animals. Vegans say we alone have the ability to choose not to. I never saw a wild thing sorry for itself. A bird will fall frozen dead from a bough without ever having felt sorry for itself. Following a trend, the Lord God.
dominion over the animals of the earth. He didn't say thou shalt have dominion over big wad of tofu. He also it. said the men shall have dominion over the women. So do you believe that? Do you buy that line too? No, what do you think about that? I'm serious. It depends on how you interpret it. Oh, it sure does. Well, just wait a minute. Wait, wait, hold on. Why do you think that being a vegetarian is a trend and meat eating is not a bigger trend? Congress hasn't given the FDA really any authority on farm animal welfare practices. There are virtually no rules. Wasn't there some uh, big law, maybe in the 50s, passed about the treatment of cattle, at least? Yeah, that's the treatment of animals in slaughter plants, not on farms. And the USDA has the authority to enforce that law. And it relates to the treatment of a very small portion of farm animals, probably about 5% of all the slaughtered animals. I mean, I was surprised when I saw that in the 50s that there was some concern. How did that come about? Do you know? Yeah. And you'll be perhaps even more interested to know that there was a farm animal protection law passed in 1873. Wow. The first federal animal protection law in the country. I mean, who's out there in 1873 advocating for (laughs) animals? We've only stopped slavery, right? That's right. So here's the deal. In 1865, a lot of the former abolitionists turned their attention to animal protection. And in 1866, they founded what's now called the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And one of the very first things they did was to advocate for horses. They would do exposés of the new railroads that were transporting all types of animals to, for example, Chicago, the big meat market, And animals would be on these trains for days at a time. And they would die. They would have no food or water. And so the Congress had a very impassioned debate. And they passed a law in 1873 saying that if you're going to transport farm animals, that every 28 hours they have to be given food, water, and rest. So that was the first farm animal protection law. That's so interesting that it was abolitionists because I, I wonder in 100 years are we going to look back on it with the kind of moral clarity we now have about slavery where maybe people debated it at the time, right. but now it just seems so obviously all wrong. Yeah, it's very easy now for people to say that they would be against slavery, but most people weren't against slavery, you know, even in the 1850s or even most northerners. So it's interesting that it's actually abolitionists that created the animal rights movement. Yeah, it's the same exact thing, actually, in Britain. William Wilberforce, who was the main member of parliament who succeeded in banning slavery throughout the British Empire, he founded the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. But anyway, in the 1950s, there were a series of exposés on slaughter plants in the country, so much so that Eisenhower wrote that if he went by his mail alone, he would think that the only thing that Americans cared about was the treatment of animals in slaughter plants. And then the HSUS was founded in 1954, and its first major campaign was enacting the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act in 1958. So the final minutes of some farm animals' lives will have some modest amount of protection. But as far as 99% of their lives are concerned, while they're actually on the factory farm, there's no federal law that relates to their treatment. We have passed laws in nine states now to ban various inhumane factory farming practices, but the vast majority of states still have virtually no rules on how you can treat farm animals. Yep, it's going to take a lot of eggs. Denny's Free Grand Slam Day is back this Tuesday. Great day to be an American, bad day to be a chicken. What legislation do you have pending? 
The most important bill in the Congress on this particular issue right now is the bill that would ban barren battery cages. In battery cage egg facilities, the birds are unable even to spread their wings. They're given an industry average of 67 square inches per bird. Now, take one sheet of paper, it's eight and a half by 11, that's 93 square inches. So fold it back by a third. And that's how much space each one of these animals has on which to live for more than a year before she's slaughtered. That's his entire life. That's her entire life. That's 18 months, essentially in a motionless state. You were just facing the crowd. Because the vegan movement has successfully challenged the primary defense of carnism, which is denial and invisibility, we can see entirely new ideologies being constructed, and one of them I call compassionate carnism. Well, yes, we are concerned with animal welfare. We recognize what's happening in factory farms. But veganism is really too radical and extreme, so we recommend the path of moderation, and moderation is eating animals who have been raised in so-called humane conditions. Now. You could argue that there's no such thing as a humane way of killing somebody to eat them. But, you know, given how hard it is for people to change, it seems to me that groups that are trying to just make farming more humane, that's a step in the right direction. And they are attacking the things that are worst about the meat industry. So it seems to me that that's a good thing. I'm not saying that welfare reforms don't have their place. It's just not the focus of our work. We believe that reducing the amount of animal carnistic foods that people eat may be a faster route than having people eat the same carnistic foods just from what they believe are somewhat different circumstances. Well, I mean, I think if we're concerned about animal suffering, there's the killing of the animal that is a part of the suffering. But if they're living in, in these miserable conditions for a year or six months or however long before they're killed, mm -hmm. that's also a concern. It's absolutely also a concern that the vast majority of animals, 99% or so, that people consume come from factory farms. I think instead of just saying you have to stop this completely, that half measures are a step in the right direction. Right. Well, you suggest that people are trying to move along the continuum. Of course they are. That's a great thing. But agribusiness has turned it into a PR opportunity that's been wildly successful for them, less so for the for, animals. For sure. For the vast majority of animals who are raised under what are referred to as humane standards, those standards would be horrible to the average consumer. I support the efforts of anybody who's trying to make the world a better place for animals. I don't purport to know what the best thing is. And again, people need to make changes in a way that fits in with where they are at this moment in their life. Veganism and carnism exist on a continuum, and I don't know anybody who's living in modern society and is actually way at the far end of the vegan continuum because animal products are in virtually everything that we use. So it's really moving along that continuum that's most important. Okay, I did some checking, and what Dr. Joy said about labeling is true. Most of it is highly unreliable. Terms like cage-free or free-range are nearly meaningless. They don't mean the animals are not overcrowded or ever go outdoors. The word humane has no legal or regulated definition. The word organic is defined by the USDA, but has nothing to do with humane treatment. Whole Foods, which a lot of people think of as a place for conscientious people, it uses global animal partnership to certify their foods, and their standards are 
extremely weak. They have no rules or oversight related to slaughter. The toughest third-party verifier out there is Animal Welfare Approved, and they have a great labeling guide for dummies on their website. You can find a link to it on the program notes. Dr. Joy is also right that close to 99% of meat in America comes from factory farms. That's a fact. But if people do their research and really do limit themselves to consume animal products that come from outside the factory farm system, they will almost certainly be eating a much more vegan diet and may continue further down that path as time goes on. They will also be supporting people who are giving some animals at least a somewhat better life. I can't argue with anyone who says killing animals is wrong, period. But as long as factory farms exist, every reform that makes them a little less cruel is going to affect a lot of animals. Temple Grandin has spent her life redesigning slaughterhouses to be less cruel. She has abetted the slaughter of millions of animals. But I think you'd have to say she's done more to alleviate their suffering than if she had simply washed her hands of the meat industry. As long as factory farms exist, it's hard not to see anyone that tries to offer an alternative as the good guys. I'm Kathy Lindner. And I'm Ken Lindner. And we are the company that brings you 100% grass-fed bison raised in the state of California. We're Lindner Bison. On the Heritage Ranch. About 18 years ago, we were trying to decide what we wanted to do for an active retirement. And there's ranching in my family's background. Kathy's great-great-grandmother was called the cattle queen of Montana. And Ken wanted to farm, and we decided on bison. We both liked the meat, and we thought it would be a viable way to have the ranch pay for itself if we ever got that far. So we got four animals, and we found a rancher who would look after them, and we just kept our jobs and kept growing the herd while we learned about the meat business. But we literally started from scratch. Were you committed to this idea of ethically produced meat from the beginning, or did you evolve into that? You know, we evolved into it. We first bought our animals in 1997. And in those days, I remember even talking about silly things like Kobe bison, which is completely ridiculous. But when we first started, we didn't know any better. Well, I don't know any better now. Tell me why that's ridiculous. Kobe beef has traditionally been raised in Japan. Mm -hmm. And the animal is confined its entire life. It's not allowed to walk around. They actually massage the muscles so that they don't atrophy and they give it sake and basically they just sort of anesthetize this animal and then it's very very tender and and just loaded with fat because the animal has never moved. I always imagined that this animal was so pampered it was massaged you know but this is a different picture you're painting. And even think of putting a wild animal like bison into that situation would be not only inhumane, but you try to confine one like that, they're just going to tear the place up. We just didn't know any better. We worked for corporations who had a model of volume and having a unique product and making money. And that's really... Our um, beginning framework. Yeah. There's no market incentive to take into account the animal's feelings. The market pressure is just to make it as cheap as possible. So, Yeah, those people treat them like inventory. They really could care less whether they're living animals or not. Well, and anytime you get into a high-volume situation like that, there is a purposeful disconnect that is encouraged. It's all about volume, cost efficiency. There was this one friend of ours, and he did grain feeds, and he had said, you know, during the winter months you want to 
put artificial lights in there because it tricks their metabolism and they're going to want to eat when in nature they actually eat far less in the winter and use up that reservoir of fat they have and then by springtime it makes it easier for calving. So there's a whole cycle connected with that. One of the reasons we're talking to you, we really want to get the word out, especially to younger people who are looking for something to do, that people should start considering agriculture again. The number of people that are our age that are in ranching right now, compared to the younger folks coming into ranching, the ratio is 60 to 1. Wow. In 10 or 15 years, who is going to be raising the animals? Do we want it all to be mechanized, big corporations? Or can we get younger people and more ethical producers involved? Can you talk about uh, the differences between people who do it wrong and how you do it? About 80% of the industry yes, put them in feedlots. They yeah. do wean calves. They put them in feedlots to fatten them up quick. Some people take their horns off so that they're easier to handle. What we think is a crime. It would be like cutting off one of your arms. You would still be alive, but you wouldn't be able to protect yourself. A lot of people, we use the word catalyzed bison. They try to treat them and raise them like cattle, and they're not cattle. It seems like we shouldn't be catalyzing cattle. Oh, yeah. True. It's not only bad for the animal, but we also believe it's bad for the meat because you end up with meat that's got higher cholesterol and fat in it. You end up with meat with a lot of adrenaline in it because the animal was stressed out. You don't get nearly as good a product. So there's a division within the industry, and when people are out there buying meat, this kind of thing really matters because it all contributes to the production method that's used. We're 100% grass-fed. We leave the family groups together all year round. The bulls and the cows and the calves are together. They self-wean. And by the way, there is no such thing as a bison steer. They're all bulls. You know, we have the older animals there that are the glue of the herd, and they teach the younger animals the proper way to be a bison. We do not have a situation where we buy calves and we bring them on and just fatten them up and sell them, because then you end up with a bunch of juvenile delinquents. <laughs> How do you pick which animals to take to be slaughtered then? They get to be a certain age. In the commercial industry, the age can be sped up to as little as 16 months because they're being corn and grain. But when and you, growth hormone, too. Yeah. When you have a 100% grass-fed animal, it takes longer. A minimum, we don't like to do it any less than 26 months, but we've done it three years, four years, five years, you Eight know. Years. And actually, what a lot of people don't know is the older the animal, the more flavorful the meat. We typically do not use the cows for meat. We have cows now that are almost 19 years old. Oh, wow. Most of the meat animals are bulls. So we take the bulls off for meat. We'll take what we call a dry cow off for meat. That's a cow that no longer has calves. And when a breeding bull gets too old, we can take him off for meat as well. But the important thing for you to know is that our calves have the benefit of their mothers. They're not orphans like most beef cattle. And the animals that are used for meat are supporting their family, and they're doing it the way that they can. Bison are such good survivors, and they have calves every year. If you didn't take animals off for meat, they would eventually starve to death because you couldn't feed them. You have to manage the size of that group, otherwise they will eat you out of house and home. Or become predator bait. Wolves, 
Yeah, well, it's not a pretty process. When we eat an animal, it's painless and it's instantaneous. Since the economic incentives push people in a direction other than the direction you're going, how do you guys survive as a business? You know, it gets a little dicey every once in a while. But most people that have found us really understand what it is we're trying to do and they want to support us. There are a lot of hidden costs that we all really pay. And believe me, you pay now or you pay later. So our customers choose to pay now instead of contributing to factory farming, industrial waste pollution, and all the things that go with that. Including their own health. And we have a premium product. Our burger right now is going for almost $11 a pound. And people gratefully pay that because they know that the meat is the best they'll have. They know there's no waste, and they know the animals haven't been abused. When you started out raising bison and you first saw them being slaughtered, was that hard? Did that take some getting used to? Yeah, no question. I'm not sure it gets easier. We do say a blessing before and after, but we're not sure it's supposed to get easier. Hmm. It really doesn't get any easier. The only thing we try to do, you don't become attached to individuals. You become attached to the herd. It's the health of the herd. And it's the health of the herd that's important. So we just do the best we can. We do care about them. Hi, I'm Dr. Melanie Joy. I am the founder of the Carnism Awareness and Action Network and the author of Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. Before we go on with Dr. Joy, I just want to say something about language. That word carnism and other terms she uses bumped me a little. Why is she making up new words? Why not just use the words we all use? So I asked her. I noticed you'll say carnism, where it would be very easy for you to say meat-eating. I'm sure you have a reason for that I'm curious about. (laughs) It's a good observation. I do. I don't like reinforcing the use of the term meat to refer to somebody's flesh because I believe it's a social construct. Ah. So there are... It's loaded. Just It seems like a neutral word to me, but it's... uh, Loaded. ah, Yeah, interesting. Is it a way of saying also that what people take for granted is also an ideology? Calling someone a vegan is almost a way of marginalizing... So I wondered if part of your thinking in using the word carnism is to say, this is just another worldview, this is not a neutral approach. You also have an ism attached to your behavior. Exactly. It's really important for people to recognize that we're making a choice every time we eat animals. We think it's only vegans and vegetarians who bring their beliefs to the dinner table. But when eating animals is not a necessity for survival, which is the case in much of the world today, then it's a choice. How about that? And did you happen to notice before the difference between how Paul Shapiro and I referred to a hen? That's how much space each one has on which to live before she's slaughtered. That's his entire life. That's her entire life. I thought we were in agreement, but clearly I'm not all the way there yet. And when I went to watch Dr. Joy online, I came with a certain amount of prejudice about what a vegan was. I was expecting her to be angry and depressing, but it turned out she was upbeat, reasonable, and even funny. I asked her about how she came to this approach and whether she made mistakes when she first turned to veganism. In the beginning, when I was really new to veganism, I would often find myself feeling like I had to defend an ideology that I knew in my heart of hearts was the right thing to do, but I would get tongue-tied. One of the biggest lessons that I learned is how important it is to know the subject well, because that enables you to be responsive rather than reactive. What's the difference? 
being responsive means having the opportunity to pause and respond in a way that is thoughtful, as opposed to sort of a knee-jerk reaction to feeling defensive. I remember a long time ago, I stopped wearing leather, and somebody in my family said, oh my God, isn't that a little extreme? (laughs) And from her perspective, as somebody who was eating animals on a regular basis, I can see today, of course, how that would be perceived as extreme. But at the time? I found that that was dismissive of me and my beliefs, and I proceeded to list all of the reasons why people shouldn't wear leather and then go on and on, because I took her response personally. Today, I can respond differently. I can recognize that this person may, in fact, be asking a question that they genuinely are curious about, which more often than not is the case. Mm -hmm. I can also stop and ask why they're asking that question to get a sense of whether there was an intention to shut down the conversation. It's really important for us, and this is a lesson that I learned, not to feel that we are responsible for turning everybody around us vegan. As Colleen Patrick Goudreau says, the goal of vegan advocacy is simply to plant seeds. Just being an example of an option. And it's being grateful. When people ask, very often vegans feel frustrated by some of the questions that we have heard a thousand times, like, where do you get your protein? Mm -hmm. And feel that questions are maybe defensive when they're not, or that they're dismissive. But if we can just relate to people as though the goal is to help the other understand what's happening inside of you and to understand what's happening inside of the other. That's why we have words in the first place. If we approach communications with compassion and a genuine desire to connect, it's unlikely that we'll have a high level of conflict in our exchanges, regardless as to what we're talking about. One thing I was impressed with in your slideshow is your sense of humor. And I think it's a challenge to And this is something I am struggling with just in making this episode, that I want to make something that's engaging, but the subject is so awful. We can be serious, as we should be, about animal suffering, but we don't have to make all of our communication about that dimension. It's a profound dimension, but it's not the only dimension. We want to just show this imagery, this heart, so that people can make that connection. The problem is that people will not bear witness when they're not ready. I think undercover footage is incredibly important. It's been central to the growth of the vegan movement. Having said that, the reality is, given the option of viewing that or not, most people will choose not to. And if it's kind of thrust at them and they're not expecting it, somebody sends them an email with this clip that opens up without permission, they can become very defensive, they can get very triggered, We're exposing people to major trauma, and the reaction is to project onto the vegan all of the feelings that really should be directed at the people who are perpetrating the atrocity. Mm -hmm. To get people to truly bear witness to the truth about animal agriculture, we need to create an environment that makes that possible, an environment that's not one-dimensionally focused on the horror. It's an environment that uses humor that's based on compassion that instills a sense of hope to offset the inevitable despair that floods in when we open up to the reality of what's happening, and that encourages people to examine their relationship with themselves and the world in a way that feels sustainable to them. So they don't feel like, oh my God, if I allow myself to take this information in, I'm going to have to make radical changes in my life that I'm not ready to make yet. I can definitely relate to that feeling. With all the research I've been doing for this episode, I'm coming to the conclusion that I've got to go farther. And 
there's this dread feeling like, oh my God, my life is about to get much more difficult. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to make any life change. I didn't go completely vegan, but I went vegetarian and I ate dairy for a few more years. There is some discomfort involved with change, and there's also a lot of discomfort involved with not changing. How did you lose so much weight? I went on essentially a plant-based diet. I live on beans, legumes, vegetables, fruits, no dairy. Once in a while, I'll have a little fish, not often. And it changed my whole metabolism, and I lost 24 pounds. And I got back to basically what I weighed in high school. But I did it because, even though it happens quite often that after you have bypasses, you lose the veins because they're thinner and weaker than arteries. The truth is that it clogged up. And thank God I could take the stents. I don't want it to happen again. I'm Dr. Albert Fuchs. I'm board certified in internal medicine, and I'm a fellow in the American College of Physicians. There were a lot of stories in the news recently quoting a study that says people who eat meat don't live as long. Now, you're my doctor, so I assume you would advise me to stop eating meat right away. I actually don't. The study was an epidemiologic study, meaning it wasn't an experiment. What they did is surveyed a lot of people and looked at their self-reported diets and saw how long they lived. And sure enough, people who reported eating more meat lived less long than people who reported eating less meat. And I found that unconvincing. All the evidence shows that if your weight is okay and you don't have diabetes and you don't have high cholesterol, as long as you're burning as many calories as you're taking in, you'll maintain your weight and it's all good. And the composition of those calories don't really matter. What's the problem with an epidemiological study? Epidemiology is full of biases. Epidemiology is when you just survey people, let them do what they're doing normally, and follow the consequences of that. The biggest example of how epidemiology led us astray was estrogen. For generations, we believed that having women take estrogen after menopause prevented strokes and heart attacks because all the epidemiology suggested that. But once we did an actual experiment, and an experiment is when you randomize people, meaning you take a 1,000 women, you flip a coin for each one, and for heads, you prescribe estrogen, for tails, you prescribe placebo, and neither the doctor nor the patient knows what she's getting. Once we did that, we discovered that actually estrogen increases the risk of stroke and heart attack. So epidemiology lets lots of biases sneak into the numbers. For example, it might be people who are unhealthy in lots of other reasons. For example, they don't exercise as much or maybe some of them smoke or who knows what other kind of biases. It's possible that those people also eat more meat. And if that was the case, then it would make it look like eating meat shortens your life when actually it's a whole bunch of other things. The only way to sort this out is to actually get a bunch of volunteers, have half of them eat much less meat than they normally do, have the other half eat much more meat, maybe control the total number of calories so that they're not gaining a ton of weight, and see what happens. And that would actually give you an answer. So I did all this research and I saw that 82% of the people since 1986 who have gone on a plant-based diet have begun to heal themselves. Their arterial blockage cleans up, the calcium deposit around their heart breaks up. And so I thought, well, since I need to lose a little weight for Chelsea's wedding, I'll become part of this experiment. I'll see if I can be one of those that can have a self-clearing mechanism. We'll see. There's a lot of big proponents of a plant-based whole food diet. And if you don't mind me clearing up. Vegan just means no animal materials. So you could have baked goods, you could have sugar, you could have oils, 
all of which would not be okay in this diet. Okay. Basically, any processed foods you couldn't have on this diet. A friend of mine is a big proponent of this diet and has lost a lot of weight on it. My wife started it about a month ago, and she's very happy with it. I haven't seen any randomized studies that show that it's any better than any other way of restricting calories. What we know for sure is that if you take in fewer calories than you burn through exercise, you'll lose weight. So this might be a good way for some people to eat very few calories in a way that makes them not feel hungry. I think that's a terrific way to lose weight and losing weight will lower your cholesterol and may help reverse heart disease. All the good things that President Clinton says about that diet works for anything else that helps you lose weight. The problem with most diets is that people feel hungry and can't stick to them. So anything that achieves satiety without a lot of calories is a diet that works for you. And I suspect that that's different for different people. Meat provides essential nutrients, organic iron, which is the best. Also zinc and all the vitamin B complex. Are there dangers to not eating meat? There's not too many people malnourished on a well-balanced plant diet. The biggest problem is just making sure that you have enough protein because most plants are very low in protein. So you have to go out of your way and make sure you're getting lots of legumes. Or nuts. Exactly, that yeah. kind of thing. And if you do that and if you get enough green leafy vegetables to get your iron because meat is another good source of that, most people do okay. Because sometimes meat eaters will throw these arguments at vegetarians saying that they're not going to be able to be healthy. They're missing certain nutrients. So you say no to both sides really. You can be yeah. healthy eating meat and you can be healthy not eating meat. Right. Ultimately, I think it's a calorie issue. And I think the biggest problem the vast majority of people have in North America is they're getting way too many calories. And that makes them overweight. Hey, Ivory. Yeah, Jonathan. You're vegan, right? Yes, that's right, I am. Can I ask you some questions then? Sure, man. Of course you can. Are you ready for the questions then? What are you waiting for? Where do you get your protein? Protein, protein. Only meat has protein. So where do you get your protein? Actually, lots of things have protein. Beans have protein. Greens have protein. Fruits and nuts have protein. Greens and seeds have protein. And here's the thing that's so obscene. Don't need so much protein. Most people eat more than they need. Well, I never knew that before. It's true. Where do you get your calcium? Only milk is calcium. Healthy bones from cow's milk. Calcium, I drink it yum. Lots of plants have calcium and lots and lots of calcium and cholesterol. Well, they have none of the fat found in milk. Isn't vegan food just bland and gross? No, it's yummier than most. You care about animals more, you do. I care about animals, people too. Aren't vegan men weak and girly? I find vegan men quite sexy. Twelve, so they're ha ha. B twelve for bacteria. Where do you get your protein? Plants. Where do you get calcium? Plants. Where do you get your iron? Plants. Where do you get your zinc? Plants. The ivory. Yeah, Jonathan. I think I get it now. You do? Yeah, it's all about plants. Yep, that's pretty much it. Okay, cool. Glad we cleared it up. Me too. Let's have a snack. Okay. I think both sides of the issue, any issue really, tend to look for more arguments than there are. Both sides will say that their way is healthier. Meat eaters surely get some of their nutrients more easily, but they also often miss others and consume way too much fat. There's so far no convincing health argument against eating small amounts of animal products. I don't say this to argue for eating animals. 
I say it to argue for honesty. We pretend to talk about health, but we're really talking about some people like eating animals and don't want to give it up, and other people think it's wrong. I think we should stick to that, because even if it was shown conclusively that the other side's way was healthier, most people would still probably stay where they are, because they have bigger reasons for being there. Another one of these fake issues is whose way is more natural? Both sides will argue about our teeth and our digestive systems and what we're designed for. I say, who cares what's natural? As my friend Kumail says, snake venom is natural. You know what's not natural? Birth control, airplanes, listening to someone's voice when they're nowhere near you. Let's just talk about what we're really talking about. Now, one place health and ethics and animal products do intersect is the environment. The problem with the pink slimes was that in order to prevent microbial growth, they had it ammonia. One of the most advantage of cultured meat is that we will be able you know, to make these cells grow in a bioreactor. So in a close environment, we can be free of all these disease. And at this point, we won't need all those additives that are used to reduce the microbial loads in meat products. But, Mirko points out, don't think that veggie burgers are a free ride either. The proteins in the vegetable world, they are different. They are not fiber-like proteins like meat, like your muscle. So to make these meat analogs, we need to use energy. First, we need to extract the proteins, which require a lot of water and a lot of alkali or acidic solution. When they are extracted and you get your protein concentrate, you have to get a fiber-like structure. And to get a fiber-like structures, you need energy, you need extrusions, because you need to basically unwind to unfold these proteins. So it's not really so sustainable. Again, this is not me arguing against veggie burgers. I love my veggie burgers. It's just an interesting wrinkle. I believe that the environmental impact of factory farming is a monumental problem, big enough that we don't have to embrace accounts that overstate it. My name's Simon Fairley, and I'm the author of Beat, a benign extravagance. It seems that there are some false claims on both sides of the debate about eating meat. Mm. Why don't we start with some of the mistakes that vegans commonly make? The main mistake is to exaggerate the inefficiency of meat. I mean, if you feed grains to a cow, then it digests it very inefficiently at a rate of 10 pounds of protein or carbohydrate energy you put into the cow. You only get about one out in terms of human food. And that's a biological fact. But the whole thing is much more complex, largely because a surprisingly large amount of what's fed to animals is food that humans couldn't eat anyway, particularly in the third world large amount of livestock in the world are fed on waste products, either crop residues or food waste. Other forms of meat are where animals are playing a role for an agricultural system. For example, they're part of a rotation of crops or they're used to harness nutrients from outlying areas which will otherwise be inaccessible to humans and bring them into the arable system. What's their function in that system? I mean, we're talking here mainly ruminants like cows and sheep and so forth. The beauty of ruminants is that they're very good at digesting fibrous biomass that we can't digest. And then they turn it into high-protein, high-calorie food that we can digest, mainly milk or meat. And they do this very efficiently, far more efficiently than you could ever do it by harvesting with petrol-driven machinery. 
But that's often not the main reason why they're part of the agricultural system. Often the main reason is because while they're doing this, they're going out into the sort of outlying areas, the hinterland, and harvesting biomass and then bringing it back and defecating it at night in the area where you're growing the arable food. That's often been the main role that sheep have played in agricultural systems, certainly in England anyway. I mean, I am talking more about organic systems of agriculture because you can dispense of all this by applying chemical fertilizers, which is, of course, what the world's been doing over the last hundred years. But there's a cost attached to that, a huge cost. Grass is what brings fertility into an organic system. You don't have to have livestock to take the nutrient benefit of grass. You can simply have what's called a stockless rotation. But if you put animals onto the grass, they don't take very much out of it because when a cow eats grass, about 80 or 90% of the nitrogen and the phosphate that it consumes go straight through the cow and come out the other end, where they then use to grow wheat and potatoes and maize and beans and so forth that have traditionally been the main part of an agricultural diet, whereas the meat and the milk has been a subsidiary part. So my argument is that there is a place for dairy and for meat, but it's ancillary, if you like, to an agricultural system that's basically designed to produce grains. So the meat and the milk we get from that is a kind of byproduct. And that, at a very rough estimate, is probably round about half of all the meat and dairy that's consumed in the world. And the other half is meat that is fed on grains which are grown for the sole reason of putting them into animals. And that is done so extremely inefficiently. But isn't that the system that most of the beef that supplies the Western world comes from? It's certainly more prevalent in the rich countries, yes, because yeah. the rich countries consume large amounts of meat, whereas traditional peasant diets have a certain amount of meat in them, but that tends to be what naturally arises from the agricultural system that they're based on. But of course, we're getting more and more detached from these agricultural systems, and most people aren't even aware of what agricultural system they live under, and they just go and buy food from the supermarket. And so they don't associate what they eat with the environment that's around them. And modern industrial society aims to supply people with whatever they choose. And that results in large factory farms that have all sorts of problems, on which I don't support at all. One thing I've heard quite a bit is something like 12,000 gallons of water are required to produce one pound of beef. Well, I've followed a similar figure, which is 100,000 liters of water to provide For a kilo. A kilo. Okay. Is, but it's probably the same. I kept following references back and back. What it actually transpired was that they were talking about the amount of rain that fell on the area where a cow grazed. And, I mean, clearly, the rain would fall there whether the cow was there or not. It's a nonsense, really. Is it more accurate when we're looking at factory farming? I think it's more accurate when you're looking at irrigation because it involves moving large amounts of water from one place to another. And certainly, there's irrigated farmland, particularly in the dry western areas of the United States. That is a problem. Irrigating crops for livestock feed is a huge waste of resources. But some kilos of beef are, in terms of water, produced with very little impact whatsoever or, or virtually none. Uh, some kilos of beef which are produced with a huge amount of impact. It's stupid to apply a figure to all beef because some beef is pretty sound and some isn't. Whereas a rangeland beef cow that typically in Britain would simply be in a field for most of its life, the rain falls on the field and the cow drinks some of it and then the rain disappears into the soil and into the rivers.
Now, what about this statistic I've heard many times that cattle produces more greenhouse gas emissions than transportation? Well, it comes from a food and agricultural organization publication called Livestock's Long Shadow. This is something that came out of the United Nations? Yeah, yeah, it published in 2006. Mm-hmm. And for reasons best known to themselves, they seem to have decided to try and massage the figures to show that livestock produce more emissions than transport. And just right the way through, really, there are huge flaws in their analysis. They estimate that 18% of all human-induced greenhouse emissions are caused by livestock. And this 18% is divided up very roughly into three parts of methane, carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide. And, well, in terms of carbon dioxide, virtually all of that comes from a very small number of cattle that are ranged in the Amazon and responsible for the destruction of the rainforest, which, of course, deserves to be condemned. But they themselves say it's an untypical form of livestock rearing. And to tar the whole of livestock with the problems caused by about 1% of the global herd doesn't make sense. You might as well argue that you shouldn't eat vegetable oil because a certain amount of vegetable oil is responsible for the destruction of rainforests in Indonesia. In terms of methane and nitrous oxide, which are the other two, the problem with the way the FAO analyse these is that they simply say, well, so much methane is produced by cows and if we got rid of cows, we'd get rid of that amount of emissions. But the trouble is, if you get rid of cows, then something else comes in their place and they haven't done any analysis as to what would replace livestock if we took them out of the system. If you took the 60 million-odd cows that are in the western plains of the USA, then you'd quite likely end up with 60 million bison that were there before. If you remove livestock from a lot of dry areas, you end up with wildfires, and those wildfires can emit three times as much methane. If you got rid of cows in wet areas, you'd probably have more undrained land, which would be giving off methane. You might have more termites. None of this has been looked at. And on top of that, the whole thing is a bit confusing anyway, because although the amount of livestock has been increasing over the last 10, 15 years, methane levels are stable in the atmosphere. So nobody quite knows what's happening with the methane. I would say it's probably about half what the... Um, Closer to 9%. Round about 9%. Which is still significant, just not... It's still significant, I agree. And I'm in favour of reducing the amount of livestock. But to say that livestock cause more of a problem than transport is simply not true. The main cause of global warming, without any doubt, is the fact that we've taken a very large amount of fossil fuels out of the ground. So it sounds like you're not so much refuting claims made by vegans as saying they're overstated. Yeah, but I would also say that although I'm fully in favour of anybody who wants to be vegan being vegan, it's highly commendable and in a sense it's really useful because it means there's more meat to go around for other people who really like it. But I don't think it's sensible for the world as a whole to go vegan because you're wasting resources that you would otherwise have. You cannot find there are really no cultures that don't eat any meat or dairy at all because there's always some which arises naturally out of the agricultural system they're using. And it would be a sin to waste it. I wonder if you could, for the sake of balance, spend a little time looking at some of the things that pro-meat eaters, the pro-factory farming people get wrong. Yeah. I don't know what they get wrong is. I think they just ignore it, really. But the fact is, there's about a billion people are malnourished in this world. And there is ample food to feed them in the form of grain and beans and so forth. 
and this food isn't actually getting out to people. And one of the reasons is it's being fed to livestock extremely inefficiently. It is extremely wasteful. It's for the land, the water, it's for energy. So why does it happen it, if it's so inefficient? Well, I suppose people make money out of it. And there's always been a surplus of grain in the States ever since the 19th century. And it was put into whiskey and at a certain point, and then it was put into pigs, and now it's put into beef. And, of course, the next destination is biofuels. But it's been extracted extremely unsustainably. The topsoil has been mined, and a large amount of that topsoil is carted over to Europe. I mean, we've got fantastically fertile country here in Britain, and it's partly because you're in the United States was sending us all your grain and all your beef and all the nutrients have gone into our ground. So we've got extremely fertile farmland. That didn't exist 300 years ago. Not to that extent. How interesting. Well, if we could take all your prescriptions, that would take a tremendous effort and it would result in 50% fewer animals dying. I know that you're not saying everything that a vegan would want to hear, but what you're calling for is still very radical just in terms of how much we'd have to change. Well, I guess it's very radical for half the people in the world, but it's not very radical for <laughs> the other half. The E. coli problem, just that alone should tell everyone to have these animals eat their natural diet. And you understand how the E. coli evolved, right, Dan? Um, I can give natural. you a short explanation. Sure. It's that, important. These animals are called ruminants. They have multi-chambered stomach, and the first chamber is called a rumen. Uh-huh. And that rumen is inhabited by microfauna, and the purpose is to digest cellulose. The animal cannot digest grass by itself. It needs to have the help of these microbes. They're right. good guys. They're good guys. And the pH of the rumen is about normal, right around 7. And that's where these little microfauna can live. When you put an animal in a feedlot, you acidify the rumen. It kills the microfauna. It makes the rumen almost useless and it creates a very acidic environment where the E. coli in the intestines of the animal have to be able to thrive in an acid environment. That's where the bad E. coli came from. Uh -huh. Normally, if you ingest E. coli, the acid of your stomach will kill it. It will never pass to your intestine. You will not become ill. But if you ingest an acid-loving E. coli, it passes through your stomach. It's just a nice sail down the river, and it goes into your intestine, and you become ill. Mm -hmm. And the acid-loving E. coli only exists because of commercial feedlots. I mean, the government, they'll tell you to cook the it. Industry, they'll yeah. spray it with ammonia. They'll do all kinds of Band-Aid fixes, but they never do bother to get at the root cause of the problem, which is the industrial feedlot. Come again to the Veil of Ignorance. What would you think about beef if someone asked you about it before you were born and you didn't know whether you'd be born a person or a cow? What if the person would say a prayer when he killed the cow? Would that help? What would you think about the food chain if aliens came to Earth who were far more intelligent and evolved and powerful than us? 
Would you accept your new role as meat? Or would you hope they'd be merciful and let us live out our inferior lives in peace? One thing that set me down this road happened years ago. I was living in Michigan in a big house full of law students. We had mice, and someone else in the house took it upon herself to lay down glue traps. These are pretty awful because the mouse just gets stuck and dies slowly of starvation. Usually. This particular mouse somehow pulled itself off. I saw it sitting in the middle of the floor, missing a leg. Alive, but barely moving. And I thought I'd better put it out of its misery. I put on some work gloves and picked it up. I wasn't sure how to do it. I decided the best thing would be just drop something heavy on it. It would be quick. There was a cinder block nearby. I put the mouse in a plastic grocery bag to contain the mess and put it on the floor. I raised the cinder block a couple feet above it and let it go. That was it. I took the bag out and dropped it in the dumpster. I couldn't help but imagine what the mouse experienced in those final seconds. I thought it was probably frightened in that plastic bag. I had the sense that even though it was a little mouse, the fear it felt was the same size as any other fear. That what it saw and heard and felt filled its head as much as my senses fill mine. I knew I'd done the right thing, but I still felt bad about it. And at some point it led me to thinking about the animals I eat and thinking I couldn't kill them. I asked Simon fairly. Have you ever personally slaughtered an animal? I have, yeah. I don't enjoy doing it. No? I wanted to ask you what that feels like. Well, you do have to sort of brace yourself to do it. It's not very pleasant, but I've done it because I think it's part of the whole cycle of nature, really. And at the moment, I keep dairy cows, but that does involve killing animals from time to time. Agriculture is a very complex network of relationships, and it doesn't make sense to take one whole order out of it. The animals are part of our agricultural system as much as anything else. Um, In an agricultural system, everything gets eaten by everything else. That's what it is, really. That's what nature's about, is everything is consuming everything else. All the nutrients are going round and round, and we all get eaten at some point, unless we get burned. Right, but we had to live out our natural lifespans before that happens. Well, we do, yeah, and some animals do as well. But if you look at nature, it's just full of things eating each other all the time. It's something I feel one has to come to terms with. Yeah, I mean, I, it's something I wrestle with, but a lot of horrible things happen in nature that wouldn't be acceptable for humans to do to each other, so... Well, that's true, but I think, yeah, basically, I'm a speciesist. You know, I, I draw the line at species. Yeah, I'm not a cannibal. Right. Um, but you do say it's unpleasant for you to kill an animal. So, I mean, what's happening there? There's yeah, something... Yeah, you have a certain respect for the animal as well. You have a level of sympathy. But just because you find something emotionally challenging, it doesn't mean that it's the wrong thing to do. There's a part of me that finds it difficult to kill animals because I empathize with the animal. And I think about myself being killed. And I don't particularly want to be killed in these. so I balk about it. But there's another part of me, the more rational part, which says, well, actually, it's just part of nature. From an environmental point of view, it's the correct thing to do. That's an interesting question that there are other things that we are uncomfortable with emotionally, but I can't really think of anything that I'm uncomfortable with emotionally that is actually correct for me to I mean, maybe I'm uncomfortable with public speaking emotionally and I have to force myself. But that's not yeah. a matter of overcoming empathy. 
No. I feel like uh, empathy is generally a positive emotion that should not be ignored. Well, no, I don't think you should ignore it, but I don't think it should necessarily... Yeah, I mean, obviously, people who do decide to be vegan for those reasons consider that that is the most important thing to obey, if you like. And I felt like that myself. You know, I was vegetarian for six years, largely for those reasons. But eventually, it came to the point where we were keeping goats for milk, and then we had male goats, and this is a vegetarian dilemma rather than a vegan one. But, I mean, what do you do with them? You can't keep them because they all fight each other and they shag their mothers and things like that. <laughs> and so you've got to do something with it, and you can either eat it, or you can bury it, or you can give it to a friend who'd eat it. At the end of the day, you think, well, sod it. I'm broke. <laughs> I haven't got much food anyway. And uh, that's the most sensible thing to do, and it's what people have been doing since time immemorial. And it's part of life, really. When you talked about the first time you witnessed a slaughter, you said you felt a weakness. And I wondered about that word and whether you feel like you know, becoming adept and professional requires you to become a little callous. There's no doubt that the more experience that I have had around Shrita, the more professional it becomes. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a specific task that I have to do. You know, one can't be hysterically overwhelmed by emotion. And so the emotion, it's still deep, but it feels more contained. And almost like a meditation, I recognize it, I acknowledge it, and I place it over to the side. But yeah, the risk is losing that. Becoming robotic is becoming callous. I mean, a big part of why you did this is to overcome a sense of disconnect. But I think for people in this line of work, there's a danger of disconnecting emotionally because it's just too painful otherwise. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, part of the reason why I did not want to pursue this sort of work full time is I felt the possibility of being disconnected from all those values that initially inspired me to do it. And so now it feels more tempered. It can still have impact. It does still have impact. You probably know the story about Hillel, when a, a non-Jewish guy asks him to explain Judaism. I do, yes. Do you want to tell it? Because you might know it better than I do. <laughs> but I'm setting a trap for you. I mean, <laughs> the story. <laughs> right, so this prospective convert comes to Hillel and says, I'm interested in being Jewish. Can you teach me everything that I need to know while you're standing on one foot? And Hillel responds, that which is hurtful or unsavory to you, do not do to your neighbor. Sort of a negative statement of the golden rule, do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. It's exactly the analog, yeah. So how do you square that with being a shochet? Oy, boy, boy, Dan. <laughs> I mean, that's the essence of Judaism. I think Hillel's principle is in the context of the way humans relate to humans. Well, yeah, I think if we asked Hillel, that's what he'd say. But how do you justify that distinction? Um, I mean, it seems arbitrary. Yeah, it's a hard one to justify. <laughs> or self-serving. From a rabbinic perspective, we look to the creation story, and there we see this nebulous responsibility to be stewards of the natural world and also consumers of the natural world. 
but it can be hard to square because all life has a soul and a soul means feeling and consciousness. I'm not sure I can really justify what it is that I do through the lens of do unto others because it would fall apart there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I, yes, I agree with you. The animal wants to live. And I think that it's brutish to think that this animal is here for me to utilize. Um, But I can't help but feel, despite how bizarre it must sound, that I want to bring compassion into the stroke of the knife. Not to quiet compassion, but to exercise compassion through the process of slaughtering. And I can only imagine how crazy that sounds. No, 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 not at all. I I could conceive of doing the act compassionately, but I still feel like there's a part of your compassion that you have to overcome. You see a creature in front of you that's struggling. You know it wants to live, and there's a part of you that feels for that animal and wants to give it what it wants. Yes. And then there's another part of you that says, I have a job to do, and I have to not give it what it wants because I want something different. That happens. Yeah, it does. I mean, look, I think you're right. You know, it's a strong argument to say, come on now, to exercise compassion would be to know the desire of the animal, which is put me down and let me live. I mean, I think that's right. In the context of kosher slaughter, of I think really being in a world that is not on a community scale, let alone a global scale, ready to live the values of vegetarianism, let alone plant-based veganism. My hope is that the role that I can play as a shochet, as a kosher slaughterer, is to be the stepping stone to help enable people to expand their consciousness to bear on what they eat and how they eat and how their food comes to the table. And to be honest with you, this is where I see my own lifestyle heading is on that plant-based route, and I would love to see more people open themselves to that for health reasons, for ethical reasons, reasons of compassion, environmentalism, etc. But not everyone is there, and in the spirit of meeting people where they're at, bringing compassion to bear, even on kosher slaughter, I think has potential to move that needle. That's so interesting, because you're a spiritual leader, and there's an idea of leadership that says you go first to the new place. But I guess if you go too far ahead, you lose the flock. It's exactly right. Rabbi Yitz Greenberg said something to the effect of if you're 10% ahead of your community, you're a lunatic. If you're 5% ahead, you are in stasis. But if you're 7% ahead, you're ahead enough to be charting a course for a new vision of possibility but close enough that people can be along for the ride. Right. That's so interesting. (laughs) It's so hard for most of us, and I include myself in this, to intellectually understand the value of X lifestyle or X diet and just start something new. So you do see vegetarianism as maybe the destination we should be thinking about. Oh, I have no doubt in my mind that... The high road is, you know, this Edenic vision of sustainable plant-based eating. It's the vision for the messianic age, which is a time of peace and values-based living. 
but we're at that in-between. And so, I mean, I think the great possibility for what kosher slaughter is supposed to be, I think it's supposed to make us uncomfortable and make us conscious of what the ideal is. Why do we use carnistic defenses in the first place? Why do we use denial, justification, objectification? Because we care. We care about animals and we care about the truth. Why else would we need to go through all the psychological acrobatics if not because we care? I've been talking about eating animals for 20 years now and I have never encountered a person who doesn't cringe when faced with images of animals suffering. And so our caring is both the problem and the solution. Our caring is what makes us want to turn away from the truth. But our caring is also what gives us the courage to face the truth. How many of you remember Frances Moore Lepe? She wrote a book in the early 70s called Died for a Small Planet, where she was one of the first people at least popularized the idea that meat-eating was environmentally costly. So I was going to school at UC Davis. I was a vegetarian. We, all my friends were vegetarians, and I was studying agriculture, and we were doing all this activist stuff on campus to promote organic farming and small-scale farming, alternative farming, all kinds of things. And so we had this lecture series, and we invited Francis Morlape to come and give a talk. And she was quite famous back then, so we had to rent this huge auditorium. You know, all these people came. It was a big event. But before the event, we had a potluck. And uh, we invited her to the potluck. And so we all came with the vegetarian dishes, and Francis Morlape showed up with rabbit meat. <laughs> and we kind of like looked at her and said, What? <laughs> How could you? And she said, this is a rabbit I raised myself on the scraps from my kitchen. And that's a very efficient way, again, an environmental way of having meat, because that's going to waste anyway. It's better than composting it, is to have it recycled through an animal. You know, she was not interested in the ethics of killing. She was interested in the ethics of resource use. It's still a question mark for me, this issue. I don't feel like I have it resolved. I don't feel like I have come to the best possible solution but not because of a lack of a lot of thought and consideration and care. But um, I think it's beautiful to grapple. And some of you maybe have already come to a decision and know pretty clearly how you are with it. And some of you maybe can still question it. And what I encourage you, if you question it, is don't question it from the point of view of guilt and shame, but really question it from the point of view of what's most beautiful in your heart. Question it from the point of view of whatever compassion, wisdom, love you have for the whole world, including yourself. Let that be the source of your exploration. Feeling guilt and shame is a waste of resources.
that's the show. You should know that that closing bit was from Gil Fronsdahl. Check out myaclonicjerk.com for more information about him and everyone you heard. Thanks to everyone who took the time and risk to talk to me about such a charged subject. I'm still evolving and I'm sure I got things wrong, but I did my best to be truthful and fair. And I think that's true of everyone I spoke with. If you write to me or to anyone else you heard, please keep that in mind and be nice. I do love hearing from you. Thanks so much to Neil Wright for some lovely original scoring. And big thanks to production assistants, Mark Hutchison and Brian Lotz. That's it. Thanks for listening. Next episode, sex. Bye-bye. One, two, three. I am Christopher Spezkas, and I am a chef in a nice but bankrupt country. Hi, my name is Christopher Spezkas. Dan Kaufman was my lover in college. <laughs> my name... Ah, uh, uh, hi. Hi, my name is Christopher Spezkas. I'm a goddamn chef. Hi. <laughs> One, two, three. Go. My name is Christopher Spezkas, and I like watermelon. Hey. I love it. <laughs> <laughs>